Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Listeners, and welcome yet again to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by Consequence of Sound. Uh, this is a fantastic podcast in which we go through the Stephen King bibliography, whether it's his novellas, short stories, and then, of course, his tremendous and sometimes not so tremendous novels, as we'll be talking about shortly. Uh, let's kick things off. I am one of your co hosts, Justin Gerber, a senior writer at Consequence of Sound, and returning. This is her second time on the podcast. A new loser. Hi, Mel Castle. <laughs> that was a great prompt. New yeah. loser. Mel Castle. Mel Castle. Hi. And to her left and producing this episode. Uh, Mackenzie Gerber, a con- constant contributor to uh, the, mm. the Consequence of Sound. Nice. <laughs> You're rolling your eyes at that. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. And then, ladies and gentlemen, we're very excited to have her back after a bit of an absence due to other, um, what can you say, other things you've got to do in life, you know? And she's back. Her name is... Allison Shoemaker, senior writer, Consequence of Sound. That's right. And no longer um, rotating female member of the uh, podcast Yeah, as now well. there are two of us. Yeah, there's two of us. 50%. <laughs> yeah, there's people out there like, oh, they're taking over. And now, 50% of the rotating female. That's right. Yeah. A solid 50%. Uh, so yeah, this episode, we're going to be talking about Stephen King's road work, which is his third Bachman novel. Um, this is the first time... I read Bro Work, and I think this is one of the, the rare cases where this is the first time for all of us. Is that right? Confirm yeah, I, I'm yep. right. Yeah. yeah interesting. Crazy. Interesting. Uh, let's go around. When was the first time you heard about Row Work? Mel, we start with you. Literally had not. Um, it's the only Bachman book I hadn't heard of. Mm. Also, the only Stephen King book that the Barnes & Noble next door to my work did not have in stock. <laughs> they said you'd have to go to Skokie. Um, even the Evanston about, one didn't have it. <laughs> say, that sounds wow. about right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I did not know it existed. I I read The Regulators was my first Bachman book, and mm. I knew about all the other ones. And for some reason, this just was not on the radar at all. Maybe for good reason you didn't know yeah. about this book. Uh, Mac, I, I, I've lived, well, your entire life you've known me, and I've known you most of my life. That's right. Um, I don't know, but, but the one thing I don't know about you is when was the first time you heard about <laughs> road work? Uh, I I think it was when we were talking about uh, you know doing the next episode. And <laughs> we talked about said so what's next. I think I, I was looking for Cujo, and uh, and you said no 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 we've got. Bachman's road work. I think I violently pulled you aside. Yeah, said, no, and wait. You said no. This needs to be explained. No, uh, that was the first time I'd never. I didn't know it existed. I actually didn't. I went in completely blind. I didn't read the synopsis. I didn't read anything about it. I had no clue except for the cover, which is kind of misleading. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was my first introduction. All right, Allison. Oh, we had a copy of the Bachman books on the shelf when I was a kid, but I just. Um, they were actually never really a part of my Stephen King fandom when I was younger. So I think I probably was aware that it existed, but never really thought about it. And it turns out with good reason. So, <laughs> Well, I reread it immediately as soon as I was finished with it. 
Um, for it's a me, regular of mice and men. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's a class. Steinbeck wept. Um, for me, there's a really bad. Um, I think the first edition is this. He looks like the protagonist George Bar- Barton or Barton George Dawes looks like the brawny man from the Paper Towels in this edition. I used to look at growing up like this really cool GI Joe esque looking guy with a rifle. And then below him is his, is his house surrounded by cops, which is basically just a spoiler alert for the last six pages of the book. And so I always associated real work with paper towels for most of my life, <laughs> where I really probably should have associated with toilet paper. Um, not to get ahead of ourselves. We really like the book a lot. I shouldn't say that. Um, but uh, then, of course, yeah, I, I realized, oh, this Stephen King is Richard Bachman. And then for some reason, and maybe for good reason again, I this is one of the, the rare Bachman books I have not read. And for the purposes of this podcast, actually, this is the first book that we're covering that I had not read before. Oh, so, wow. yeah, I'd read everything else at least once before. Oh, boy. And so I was really looking forward to this, though, because as we'll mention later on, King considers this his best Bachman book of the early Bachman books. But again, I think Stephen King loved Death Race 2000, yeah. his favorite movie of 2007, <laughs> whatever it was. So, again, we can't, we can only take King's opinion so far. That's, you know. I think we're all on the, the same page there. That cover that you're referencing is on the Wikipedia page for this book, it's and I just so encourage everybody to take a look at it because it is hilarious. We'll have to do a side-by-side um, of the Brawny Man and, <laughs> <laughs> and the Dawes of the first edition uh, paperback um, edition there. Uh, but let's get into real work. Uh, we've got a couple things here we can talk about. What, you guys want to talk about the energy crisis of the 70s first, or do you want to talk about King, King, the early work of Stephen King? I'll leave it up to the three of you. Where, where should we go first on this? Anybody have any specific uh, – anybody, anybody want to hear specific bits of history? Or can I just get going here? Just I, go. Just. I mean, I would rather talk about the energy crisis of the <laughs> 1970s incredible. than this book. We reached it. But um, whatever. Well, All right. Was, well. Where, where, where was Stephen King at when he wrote this? Okay, here's, here's the thing. This is um, from – Richard Cheesemar, you know, he, wrote, he co-wrote Gwendy's Button Box. He's got a really good site called Stephen King Revisited, and he's going through and revisiting all the Stephen King novels, writing essays on them. And he had Bev Vincent. He is a King historian who also wrote The Road to the Dark Tower Compendium. Not the actual Dark Tower Compendium, but another compendium of the Dark Tower. And he gave us a little insight on the history of road work, and this is what Bev Vincent has to say. Uh, in 1973... King finished the first draft of Salem's Lot, which was then known as Second Coming at the time. Carrie was slated for was sorry, Carrie was slated for publication the following spring. However, King's mother Ruth died in December of that year after a long and painful illness, and her death left King grieving and shaken by the apparent senselessness of how cancer had tormented her. In an effort to work through his thoughts and feelings about his loss, he started writing road work. The book has a number of autobiographical aspects. The protagonist, Barton George Dawes, has recently lost a family member to cancer. Okay, so that explains, I guess, the where Dawes is coming from, from a yeah, I guess. family relationship point of view. <laughs> I'm not going you know, yeah. to diminish that. Um, but here's the fascinating part that could have changed. We wouldn't be sitting here today, I feel like, talking about Stephen King if this had happened. Um, Vincent writes, Real Work could very easily have been King's second published novel. Once Carrie was in publication was in the publication Pipeline, I should say. He submitted both the Road Work Manuscript and Second Coming to Bill Thompson for consideration. King remembers the discussion that followed. So this is, this is King talking. Now I'm not going to do his voice, but this is King talking. Bear with me. 
I asked Thompson which one he wanted to do first, and he said, you're not going to like the answer. He said that Roadwork was a more honestly dealt novel, a novelist novel, if you know what I mean, but that he wanted to do Salem's Lot because he thought it would have greater commercial success. <laughs> Thank God. Right? Yeah, no joke. Okay. Though in the first introduction of the Bachman books, King calls Roadwork probably the worst of the early novels because it tries so hard to be good and to find some answers to the conundrum of human pain, which I will still agree with 100% on that early take that King has of his early work. Uh, King says now, in the second introduction, that Roadwork is his favorite of the four, which is, look, Rage is awful. I think everybody who's read Rage can maybe attest. Mel, have you actually read Rage? No, I have not. You've not read Rage. Ooh, Allison is definitely. I know it's a. I Allison's, haven't either. Yeah, we yeah we've we've got to we've got to read it now. Allison literally had to because she was on the Rage episode. My brother somehow evaded it, which is incredible. I was there to record it though, so I still suffered. Oh, the that's right. You just sit there silently. The review, the enthralling discussion of Rage. Um, but here's the thing I, I, about King: he seems to envy Bachman for being simultaneously funnier and more cold-hearted than he was at the time, and I guess there's some dark humor in here at times but it's not very funny at all it's very it takes itself way too seriously i guess at times or it doesn't know how to handle the serious material yeah. anybody agree with me on that i mean i do yeah. um this probably will not be the last time that i mention this but as i was reading this book i got maybe 20 30 pages in and he had read like the fifth sign Mm-hmm. Where the text is in the like all separate, all and I went, "This is the worst Kurt Vonnegut impression I've ever read." <laughs> and then, like ten pages later, later he had just finished reading all of Kurt Vonnegut's novels, and I was like, "Oh my god!" It's like, of course I you just did. Can't. <laughs> I just can't. Um, yeah, and I and I wonder if maybe that in King's head. Um, it's funny in the way that Kurt Vonnegut is funny, or something, because it's oh, ju- yeah. and and it's not, it's not, um, but it. It feels a lot like a Kurt Vonnegut impression to me. Uh, I guess we can kind of start talking about, on that note, Allison, the hook and the structure of the book. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. I mean, this book is trying to be about... um, like, like a, a man done wrong. Um, the end of the neighborhood, even though it's the 70s, and the end of the neighborhoods wouldn't really come for another 25 years. Um, it's about grief. It's about... It's it's about everything negative, pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about the government. It's about, of course, the free energy... The, not the free energy crisis, but the energy crisis at the time. What When you were reading this, at what point did you realize what this book was, was about or was trying to be about, Mel? I feel like it's billed, and when we read the synopses, we'll probably get this impression, as this sort of thing is a man pushed to the edge and what happens when you are forced to go to that place by bureaucracy. But actually, and I feel like we get this pretty early in the book, I felt like, wow, this is really just about futility and like the senselessness, which you, I think, quoted earlier of like his mother's illness carries over into like the senselessness of everything he's doing. Even really early in the book, he sort of just gives up before any even any final confrontation, Mm -hmm. just how he doesn't take any action about losing the laundry. It's it's just total bleakness (laughs) throughout, I feel like. So... It's not even about, like, what action is this man going to take? Although they try to build it like that because it's way more exciting than a man just disintegrating. <laughs> yeah, uh, my first... Uh, well, you know, it's funny because because I went in so blind 
And I knew it was a Bachman book and we had already had this long discussion about reading the long walk and like our putting ourselves in the time and thinking if I didn't know this was Stephen King, would I just naturally think it was going to be supernatural or something of that sort? And I remember reading, so I started reading, I started reading the book. I actually ended up listening to it on audible, but reading it the first 50 pages or so, I just, I kept, you know, getting distracted and he kept having these conversations and, you know, with Freddie in his head and all this stuff. And I, so I was, I was actually thinking it was going to go a, a bit supernatural oh. to an extent. Um, like maybe he was talking to someone that wasn't there or a ghost of someone that was like haunting him from Vietnam or something, or, you know, I don't know. I don't know where it was going, but, um, uh, but when I started listening to it on audible and, and, um, you know, really, really getting into it. Uh, yeah, it didn't take too long to figure out that this was just going to be, you know, like Mel said, the disintegration of this of this man and the world around him, and how he, you know, gets out. <laughs> Alice, any early impressions when you're reading this, where you were like, "Oh, this is what the story is going to be." Um. Well. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to the same well, I thought, oh, so this is Breakfast of Champions for the Energy Crisis. <laughs> Got it. Great. Um, you know, it's, at first it seemed like maybe it was going to be about um, mental illness, mm-hmm. right? There's the the early Fred and George, and then Charlie shows up, and who's Charlie? And it was obvious that this it was not a man who was well in his mind. Um and then that just became sort of an irritating plot device that made it hard to follow. And then we were left with somebody whose um, inaction is supposed to feel like action. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of long descriptions of 7-Up and Southern Comfort. Man, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, man. Didn't you crave it, though? I really did. <laughs> Early on, I thought I need a drink. I mean, it did make me wish that I had a secret cocktail. Like, I think <laughs> yeah, I right. need, a, like, a secret favorite drink. A friend of mine in college and I used to, when we were really broke, uh, used to drink tequila with Dr. Pepper, and we called them, oh, it's so bad. Oh, and we called God. them special doctors, like it was <laughs> we were drinking in OBGYN. A specialist. Um, right? And uh, that was disgusting, but, I, but it made me think a little bit of of Zay Weaver and I drinking. Oh God! Uh, I love how Dr. I love Pepper how and tequila. Wasn't it? So he drank scotch in public, yeah. which he hated. And so I was like, oh, why? Why don't you just drink Southern Comfort? Because like, you he's know? crazy. Uh, no, I just uh, let's. We talked about this a little bit, but let's read about those misleading um, descriptions on the on the back of certain novels. So I've got an edition here that's an early copy of the Bachman books. So early, in fact, it includes our favorite book, Rage. And this is a brief description of real work on the back here. And it says, what happens when one good and angry man fights back his murder and then some? It's amazing how many lies you can pack into uh, yeah. 15 words here because that is not what this book is really about. I'm not sure where the, the good angle comes from. Maybe I'm being delusional. Um, I think Mac and Mel actually have the same. This is the most recent version of real work, actually. Uh, Mel, if you want to read the... The exciting description of real work on the back of that. Sure, this pocketbooks edition. It's all coming to an end for Barton Dawes. Mm. The city's Highway 784 extension is in the process of being constructed right across town and inexorably through every aspect of Bart's existence. Whether it's about to barrel over the laundry plant where he makes a living, or soon to smash through the very home where he makes a life. But as a result, something's been happening inside Bart's head that a heartless local bureaucracy isn't prepared for. A complete and irrevocable burnout of the mental circuit breaker that keeps a mild-mannered person from turning to violent means. 
As the wheels of progress and a demolition crew continue unabated throughout Bart's neighborhood, (laughs) he's not about to give everything up without a fight. As a matter of fact, he's ready and waiting to ignite an explosive confrontation with the legislative forces gathered against him. And I think it's telling that all the quotes from the news below it only reference how King is good. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> say anything about road work. Yeah. I feel like they're all, they all start off their reviews with like, listen, King is really good. We know that. But here's our road work review. <laughs> I know. No, seriously. Like it, the first page, it just says praise for number one New York Times bestselling author Stephen King. and just has things like a master storyteller. And, right. You know, like yeah. there's nothing about road work. We love you, Stephen. At all. Uh, I've also pulled up your brawny paper towel cover. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's a little tagline on there, too. Now I just have to show this around. We'll have to put this on Twitter or something. Oh, we're going to definitely do um, side by side. It was like Tom Atkins as... <laughs> Bart Dawes. Um, it just, it looks like somebody should be playing um, 16 tons underneath while you look at this cover. Uh, in, in, one, in one little sentence it says, his life was in the path of the wrecking ball, but he wouldn't budge. And then above where it says by Richard Bachman, it says, a novel of the first energy crisis. You know, when I'm looking for novels to read, I don't necessarily look for supernatural or the Western genre, the... Um, the young adult uh, drama, maybe, or the action adventure, the horror, the the, uh, the thriller aspect. I'm looking for the first energy crisis. <laughs> I'm more of a second energy crisis guy. Really? You yeah. think so? Yeah. I don't know. For me, it's the first or go home. I don't know. I like pre like pre Cloverfield, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, energy crisis. And then there's the post Cloverfield energy crisis, which we won't talk about right now because you can't, you know, you don't talk about Cloverfield as we no, all know. No, we don't. We don't. Um, just an exciting. And to be fair, though, I mean, the descriptions are like, oh, this could be a very intense, you know, raging, not to steal from the classic rage uh, novel in many ways. Our covers, too. The cover is just a man holding a gun, looking down a street, and there's bullet holes in a road closed sign. <laughs> Yeah. So, oh boy. Um, oh, here we. This is. Like, um, I will say this. I would love if this episode is nothing but um, low-level rage shade. That would be really fun. Oh. Um, I do think this is better than rage, though. Yeah, that's that's going to be an interesting so, the discussion I near the end. Say, it's tough yeah, it's for me. Better, I think it's better than rage. You know what's um, crazy? So are, you know what's funny is like I didn't read rage, and I I'm already <laughs> thinking it's probably better than rage just from that <laughs> review. <laughs> God. Rage is, is the worst of, of, of what King is possibly capable of. Rage is the worst. <laughs> In general, you can, yeah, you can take out the whole King thing. It's, it really is one of the worst novels I've ever read. We've really piled on Rage. I, I feel like I really have to. You really, it. no, you could knock it out. Actually, I read it. It's a short, it's a mercifully, well, it's not, it doesn't seem very I short, but it is a shorter novel. It might novel. be a better use of your time to just read all of the reviews on Goodreads. Mm. You would get a sense of exactly what the book is, and the writing is probably better. Not that I mean, what that'll be true of this book too. It's not like Stephen King doesn't know how to write a sentence. There are some like beautiful pieces of yeah. language in here, um, but it is uh, it rage is a garbage heap <laughs> on top of a dumpster fire beneath a pile of feces. It I'll put it worse. this way, Mel. I think yeah, it's a good it's a good point, Allison. And maybe just watching a dumpster fire for two hours sure. would be more exciting than reading rage. It smell bad though. <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's a whole other story, but. Let's get into what this book is and how this book was to us. Let's start from. I'd be more like poetic and more than the actual novel itself is. Yeah, you're putting paying way too much. Yeah, just just do the old Randall transitions. Let's um, (laughs) let's get into this. Let's let's talk a little bit about 
the energy crisis, though. I feel like we have to. Because the energy crisis is discussed throughout the entire book. I will mercifully keep this short to about a paragraph or so. And um, I did not go to Wikipedia for this, by the way. I'm very proud of myself. Uh-huh. I went to the National Museum of American History site, which is I, probably a, a validated site. I hope it is. <laughs> what these are just all, it's all inf- misinformation here. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, like a tr- it's like the truther version of the energy yeah, crisis. Fine. Stephen King went in there and wrote this and yeah, created wrote, a website. This is what it's all about. Um, the energy, to be fair, you know, a lot of people listening to this were not, Around in the 70s. I know I wasn't, so here we go. And I'm old as hell. The energy crisis played a key role in the economic downturn of the 70s. With the OPEC oil embargo of 1973, oil prices jumped 350%, and the higher costs rippled through the economy. Although business and government asked consumers to help by conserving energy and entrepreneurs worked on solutions, the economic crisis worsened. As things got more expensive, businesses laid off workers. Inflation and economic stagnation produced stagflation, which I guess is a word they invented, very clever, and showed confidence in the American dream. And this led to real like uh, jumps in price of gas at the time. And I know they were saying it, it, it rose all the way to $1 per gallon. <laughs> oh, my God. And that was a 350% increase. Keep that in mind, too. And, you know, gas stations were running out of fuel. And this was not just a brief moment. I remember after... Um, 9-11, the gas prices surged, and there was that worry right. there. But that didn't that surge didn't last. Well, it lasted a decent amount. But I mean, this was pretty much throughout most of the seventies that this was going on. So keep that in mind. I think it was important to keep that in mind reading the book as to why the protagonist and King himself is so against what the government's doing. I mean, Dawes is obviously losing his mind, but it's also fucked up that the government's coming here or the construction people are coming in here and are tearing out his home and everything else that's going on. Um, now, I will ask this next question. All joking aside, is this an interesting enough launch pad for a novel um, reading it in 2017? Does it hold up at all, that type of, that idea to bounce off of? Um, for me, not really. I mean, I still think that a lot of people don't like the government and what the government's doing, and you know, there's a lot of that going on, so you can... I guess sympathize in that sense, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, I guess in just in terms of it being a story about a, a man, you know, just you know, not I guess not getting a fair shake and just kind of slowly losing it. I mean, that was interesting to me, but I just feel like there's so much of the book where that's not what's going on, and we're just kind of with him while he's just doing stuff, and that, that just didn't resonate. <laughs> I feel like there's so many more issues now of displacement that make this ring a little hollow and uh, I don't want to say privileged, but King, as per usual, does some things in here that are not very current or politically correct. And (laughs) I feel like our crises now make him seem like more of a sad sack than a man pushed to the edge in many places. 1,000% agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there certainly there's a way of telling a story about someone who's being pushed out of his life and refuses to go in an interesting way. Um, if this was a novel about the one old lady who lives in Amsterdam um, in that season of The Wire, oh, I would no. read the hell out of that. If it was a neighborhood that was being um, dramatically gentrified and there was some giant real estate company coming to try to push somebody out of their home they've lived in for 60 years or whatever, I would be interested in reading that, provided that the characters were good. And maybe there's a world where I'd be interested in this book, um, even with 
um, to Mel's point about privilege, even with this sort of cloud of, well, I mean, they were giving you money (laughs) and I don't blame you for being upset, but like you just totally fucked everybody in your life. Um, and you don't seem very upset about it. Uh, I think that there's a way that that novel is more interesting than this one, but but Bart Dawes would have to be a much more compelling character for that to work. And that's the issue, because the, the parts for me that really worked in this, it's about the halfway point, maybe, and um, uh, I, I keep referring to him as Dawes. He goes by a thousand different names in this, which was really confusing early on, by the way. Yeah. yeah. But oh, well, yeah. Dawes is talking to an old neighbor of his, and the neighbor is talking about how he moved out and he got this money and everything else, but you know, life is just not the same. And he gets really upset about it. And I feel like they really could capture this in much more of a dramatic narrative than having to combine it with this. Let's be honest. I mean, it's not even like really the the, um, the like the dissolving of a man's mind because he's crazy already. So for me, there's no real progression with that. He was just crazy from the onset. And I don't even feel like he got crazier. I mean, obviously, it started to come out a little bit more, but. That just wasn't very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because it seems like the what he is hearkening back towards as the ideal is like Tupperware parties and going over to your neighbor's house for like a really lame get together. Like this is really kind of uplifting the idea of suburban life, which I haven't seen in a lot of books before and would have been interesting, but yeah. they don't really delve into what life was like mm-hmm. before, as you're saying. I mean, they really could have gone into also just the fact that, can you imagine, I just kept thinking about like a, like a cul-de-sac and there being one guy living in one house and then you look down that row and there's just nobody in those houses. But they really don't even try to dive into that at all. I felt like that was a really missed opportunity too. So, like the uh, isolation and everything else, you know, there's just, there's definitely a better book in here. So I in never in a million years thought that this is the thing that would come up in this conversation about this book. But what you just said, I just, I'm more interested in this. I've been playing Dream Daddy. Have you guys read oh, about yeah, Dream yeah. Daddy? Uh-oh. Okay. So it's Daddy's a, afraid to hear this. It's a, it's a dating simulator where you're playing a young dad whose partner you get to choose male or female has died and you move with your high school senior daughter to a cul-de-sac where all of the other hot dads you meet also live in this cul-de-sac and you go on dates with them it is incredibly funny and like thoughtful and compassionate and really uh, like kind of moving one of those you thought this was satire but now you're feeling something yeah and it's and it's both right like they're what a coincidence that we all live in this cul-de-sac and they're all even the like big burly ones just insanely hot um (laughs) and they do the most ridiculous things and every time you say something that's both endearing and kind of flirty a cloud of hearts flies out from behind him along with a cloud of eggplant it is so funny and wonderful and I would be way more interested in road work being like a dream daddy story where they're not willing to leave the cul-de-sac because of all the friendships they've built there and presumably all of the casual sex they've had with each other um, because I would I would read the shit out of that I would love that but that's because every single one of those dream daddies is more interesting than this character I think we need to get dream daddy to sponsor this podcast yeah. I think maybe we possible. should no. I'm not kidding Allison it's does their passionate game. reads it's a good game I Steven, played it all weekend you heard it here Steven you just finished Sleeping Beauties with Dream, <laughs> Dream Daddies. Daddies. That's right. <laughs> it's, it, that'd be a spinoff or a direct sequel. We'll find out next month when we read Sleeping Beauties by Stephen King and Owen yeah. King. It's yeah, really right. look forward to that. Looking forward to that. Um, where the hell do we go from here? I guess so. <laughs> 
Alice, you touched upon rage, and I think there are definitely similarities actually between this and rage I because do they're too. both about our, our quote unquote protagonists losing their mind and, and resorting to violence. Now, rage obviously takes place in a couple hours at a school, and that's a whole other issue we don't need to talk about ever again. And this is spread out over three months. So initially, when I was reading this, I thought, oh, this is going to be kind of like Rage, but King has learned, let's really dive into um, somebody losing it. Let's dive into this madness before it escalates in three months or whatever it is. But then about halfway through, I thought, oh, no, this is just boring as hell, um, to put it bluntly. So did anybody else catch any ra- – again, Allison, I ask you directly. Did you uh, have any similar feelings about this in Rage? Yeah, I think there's sort of a similar confusion about whether or not this is happening because the person is mentally ill, because they're wrongly dissatisfied with life, because they're rightly dissatisfied with life. Um, And the best answer is that it is some sort of combination of those things, but I don't think the book is really making that argument. It feels a little bit like chapter by chapter, just like in Rage. Sometimes this is a person who is not well and needs professional help and there's something in his brain chemistry that has gone terribly wrong and sometimes it seems like it's one man against the system whatever the hell all of the the stingers were for the book and um because the book doesn't know i don't know either but i'm not interested in the ambiguity Mm -hmm. it's not an interesting ambiguity if it was then maybe this would be a more compelling book but it um like rage feels a little pat feels a little like there are actions we're supposed to think are heroic that aren't um, feels a little bit like there are characters we're supposed to think are not sympathetic that are. Um, oh, yeah. And that is, it's a, it's a frustrating read in the same way that I was thinking about that scene in Rage where, oh, spoiler, if you haven't read Rage, and I'm spoiling this for Mel and Matt. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> where um, the one kid who is like, are you insane? He has a gun and he's in her, our classroom. We have to do something about this. Where all of the other kids gang up on him and he gets the crap beaten out of him. Ted. The the kid, the guy we're not supposed to like because he's the hunky quarterback, who's the only person <laughs> behaving like a rational human being in this scenario. And he's basically <laughs> the bad guy. And then he gets the shit beat out of him and basically his life is ruined. Um, and it feels a little bit like that. Like when he runs into Vince, Vinny, whatever his name is, at the mall, like you like you get that you're in the wrong here and he's right, right? Like I don't think, Mr. Bachman, I'm not sure that I'm having the reaction to this young, now unemployed laundry worker that you want me to have. Um, so, yeah, I saw a lot of connection. Well, you know, connection. I think it's clear, Allison, you can agree with me that Ted was a true hero of rage. Correct? Would yeah. you say that? Well, enough with heroes. Let's talk about some... <laughs> let's talk about some zeros and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> let's kick things off with, I guess, the only real character of this novel. I don't know if I'm alone on that feeling. Um, he's not the BFG, but he is the BGD. Barton. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Barton George Dawes, who has about 17,000 different ways of being identified. Um, we've all read a lot of Stephen King books. We're <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Have a good night, everybody. Yeah. Where... <laughs> In terms of compelling protagonists, now I'm not talking about the book. I'm talking about prote- compelling protagonists. Where do we where do we feel Dawes falls in the King Pantheon here? Compelling protagonists? Yeah, uh, I, I I don't think he's compelling at all. <laughs> I mean, 
No, seriously. I, yeah, I so there you go. So that, that was my nice way of probably, to, probably a zero. <laughs> I don't know. So he is truly a zero of the zeros and villains. He is. Perfect segment for this. He's a real loser, you know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, boy. Ordner. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mel, what do you think here? Um, I'm not really tempted to defend the zero <laughs> comment, but I, I can imagine if uh, an a middle-aged man who felt like things were slipping from his grasp, read this book. He might find something relatable in Bart. Um, I, I, I do, I was intrigued by the parts of his character that were not revealed, which probably says something very bad about how he's written, like the whole circuit breaker thing where he can't fully articulate what he's thinking. His mind will turn off so that he doesn't realize the big picture until maybe he's dreaming later. Um, his helplessness gets a little boring, I guess. Uh, yeah, I guess it goes back to what you were saying, since we don't see him uh, before everything went down, really, unless he's reminiscing about something with Mary and those moments are very brief. I'm always like, why did she marry him? Like, what about him was so great in the past? And I know that losing a child or, or two children, because since she has a miscarriage, can really, um, you know, mess someone up, but... Not a lot of stakes for me with mm. Bart. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Allison, I know you, you love the character a lot, so I will, I'll let you defend him. <laughs> yeah. We're announcing our engagement. <laughs> um, he lived. You know, there are moments. There are moments where he's interesting. Um, I, despite the fact that it was an incredibly irritating plot device... I always got kind of excited whenever Fred would finally get a word in. Yeah. Fred was like, listen, man, what are you doing? Why did you go to that gun shop? And then he flips the circuit breaker or whatever, and I lose interest again. Um, but I was more interested in in the little good angel sitting on BGD's <laughs> shoulder. Um, and some of his reminiscences are interesting. I was really um, charmed by the TV story. That's what I want to talk about. Sitting in front of the television and sort of smiling and crying a little, thinking about this one particular memory. Very gift of the Magi. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, let's see. God, <laughs> I don't know. Grasping <laughs> your uh, oh, yeah, I know. Well, I, th- I mean, I think that that is genuinely a very charming section. Um, I think that uh, when he's sort of joyfully lying about things, that was when he was taking pleasure in this deception that he didn't really understand. That was occasionally interesting. But yeah, I just don't find him a compelling character. And I don't think it's because I'm not empathetic enough. Um, And I don't, and like to Mel's point, I'm sure that there are people who could see themselves in this character, but I'm not sure that he's uninteresting because I'm not the target audience. I just don't think he's very well written. Um, There's nothing, whenever he feels the most human, I'm still pretty disinterested. The bad dreams didn't interest me. Um, I was more interested in seeing him through other people's eyes, and I'm sure we'll get to some of the other characters, not that there are many. Um, But there are a couple of scenes that I found really interesting, but almost entirely because of the perspective of the other character. Right. Um, Yeah, just kind kind of a swing and a miss for me. Yeah, I mean, the more I think about it, like, like there were things that were really interesting at the beginning. Like, I lo- I did love all of the, even though it was confusing as hell in the first, like, 50 pages about the whole George and Freddie relationship. And because I kept thinking that this was another character or, or an old friend that he's talking to in his head or something, you know. Um, but 
I, I really did like those those little subtle moments where it would pop in and say things like, you know, like, but, you know, why did I buy those guns? And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just, I was really interested in that taking off. But I felt like as the book continued, Freddie just disappears. And I guess we're supposed to believe that he just, he's become Freddie now. So he doesn't really, but I just don't think he has as many conversations with Freddie towards the end. Well, Freddie you is know? the good voice. It's his son. Yeah. It's his son. Yeah. Yes. And like, so I guess if he disappears, but it like, makes sense because you truly lost like his conscience. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So he's like no longer listening to him or whatever. But like, cause it, he seeks him out a lot. You know, like, like he'll start talking, like, hey, right, Freddie, right? And then, like, you know, he's, like, upset at the silence. And maybe that's just, you know, him d- diving deeper into madness, but... I feel like a lot of people... I'm sure there's a lot of people who have not read this or are listening to this right now. I, I, I actually doubt that. I, I'm assuming most people listening to this have actually read the book. But re- listening to us describe the character, it sounds... That actually does sound... He does sound like a compelling character, like somebody I'd be interested in reading about. But it's actually... It says a lot about early, early, early King. And this is, again, this is where he was probably about 25, 26 years old. And it, is that he somehow manages to make this character fairly uninteresting. You've got all these... You've got the loss of children. You've got your home being taken away by Big Brother. Um, you've got the asshole boss. Who, is he really an asshole? I don't know. But we'll talk about that later on. And yet... You blew it, you know. Um, it, it, a lot of this reminded me, look, thinking about it again, of um, everybody here seen Falling Down with uh, Michael Douglas from the 90s. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah, that? Okay. Uh-huh. It's about this guy who one day he just loses it. And he, he starts losing the McDonald's line and he goes after gangs. And it, it's it's a well, real he, early 90s movie. You know? Yeah, he like buys a bag and has a bunch of guns in yep. it. And like he goes back to these places and, you know, like holds up people and they don't, you know, fix his meal and stuff like that. It's, 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 it's intense. It's, it's like crazy. Looking at, if you watch it now, it's going to be the, even back then it was pretty ridiculous. It was a Joel Schumacher movie, by the way. <laughs> this is pre-Batman forever. But uh, I forgot to mention one thing that I thought could have been interesting about Bart is that he works at a laundry. And I thought all the laundry parts where they explain how the laundry works are kind of interesting. Stephen King used to work at a laundry, mm-hmm. so he knows that kind of technical stuff but so bart his whole life's work has been like washing other people's dirty shit and like all of a sudden he's upset that someone is doing something that make that like is forcing him out like his whole life has been catering to the man all he does is wash the man's clothes and like we never explore this like weird irony that his whole career is is one of the he someone even says it like you never think about the people who wash your sheets when you stay in a hotel Mm -hmm. But he takes a lot of pride in like his how he's worked his way up to head up the laundry plant. And so I wanted more about his job, too. I liked the little backstory we get about the guy like paying his way through college and him being a hardworking guy in the laundry. But I just thought laundry was a very interesting career choice for someone who's like suddenly fed up. Like, why wouldn't you get fed up of doing laundry? And it's weird because, in, again, in the first half, he, he really builds those characters. Like, you know, you know a lot about Vinny and all these other people. And that it doesn't go anywhere. Like they, some of them just disappear for the rest of the book. From you know, and we introduce other characters like Megliori and stuff. And I don't know. I uh, and the other thing is, it, this isn't like this is somebody who we really get a grasp of like what his politics were at all before mm-hmm. the government came and said we're going to take away your home. We don't know which way he really leaned, unless I missed something in the book. I don't think I did though. And because there's even a part near the end, and this is actually from... Here's the thing. I read this both on my computer and my phone, so I did not have... Whatever the edition that is, I guess it's the the, <laughs> the overdrive edition, whatever, it's, yeah. whatever it is. What he says, um, he wasn't really sure what he had said no to, or had he said yes, 
Yes, finally, yes, to some destructive impulse that had been part of him all along, as much a, bolt, as much a built-in self-destruct mechanism as Charlie's tumor. So, and this is nearly the end of the book when this is mentioned. So the thing is, the book is now all of a sudden asking us to think, well, was he always truly crazy? Was he crazy even before? Was he never really triggered? Was this always a part of him? And I'm like, why are you bringing this up now? We, we, we're, we're still trying to figure out, like, was it the actual act of people coming in and taking away his home? Was it really the act of his son and his unborn child being taken away from him? You just never get a grasp of who this character is. And I do like novels with the unreliable, the unreliable narrator. I really do. But this is not done in a very... Um, it, it's hard to describe it. It's not done in, a, in, a, in an interesting enough way where I get a grasp of why this person is unreliable to begin with. Because I believe what everybody's saying around him, too. I believe in their perspective. But I, I'm just not really interested in, in Dawes himself. That's where I lay off on Dawes, I guess. He's, um, what can I say? Yeah, I think we said all we can say about Bart, Bart Dawes. Uh, <laughs> what about Mary? You know, one thing we should say, though, just, yeah. and I know we'll talk about this more in a section to come, mm-hmm. but we should just acknowledge what might be his most defining character trait, which is that he is great in the sack. Oh, we will definitely oh, talk oh, about boy. that. Okay. Because right, this, so is a, this is an <laughs> early example of, this might be the early, I think this is the earliest example of the 40-ish or late 30-ish uh, king protagonist male yeah, who somehow that's the other thing we'll talk about too <laughs> yeah who somehow manages to to go to, to, to go to bed with a, a beautiful early 20-something even though he's you know fucking crazy in this book at this point too but that's the thing that's the other thing I felt like if King had written this later in life he would have gotten a better idea of how old he is because he's supposed to be like a year or two older than me but the way it read, it seemed like he was in his 50s. Yeah. yeah. It really a, did. Right? It re- definitely reads like a very young man writing about a very old man, a.k.a. someone in his 30s or 40s. Yeah, right? It does. Like it, it does. Just, it's, he's, yeah, if he had a, a little rocking chair on his porch, I would not have been surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kept picturing him sitting outside the gas station from the stand. Right? <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, yeah. There's he's just, yeah. He's not, he doesn't um, come off as a stew. Odd. Well, no, and like, then Mary, all of the constant shock that she's still pretty. I'm like, you know what? Oh, mm-hmm. we'll get there. Oh, I'm not yeah. quite ready to climb on the feminist soapbox yet, but we'll get there. But I think we'll all be on that soapbox with you. Great. But just okay. the descriptions, and like, again, I listened to this on Audible, and it was G, is narrated by G. Valmont Thomas, who does, he does a good job but when you're listening to an audiobook they do these voices and g g valmont has just he has an older sounding voice and i don't i actually know how old he was when he recorded this but so he would go into this higher register for mary and and i already it was already reading like he was 50 so then at this point and i'm like these characters are in their 60s they're like all i could picture was like my grandparents den and they're like with the the two armchairs and they're sitting there and he's you know drinking southern comfort and i I did not ever, like, it kept, it, I tried really hard to remember how old these characters are actually supposed to be. Um, I think uh, it's because they were poorly written. Oh. <laughs> Controversial theory. How about that? Well, you know what's great about this book is that, you know, Stephen King could just say, oh, well, that's, that's how Bachman writes, you know. Uh. <laughs> well, I think the cool thing about this book, though, is once you're done reading it, you don't have to necessarily read it again. And, um, That's the cool thing, is that you said? I really, really liked the end. And by the end, I meant the blank pages at the back of the novel. Yeah, because yeah. I was reading it on the computer, so it, when the page would end, I didn't know if it was actually the end of the book. You know, So I hit the next page, it just said, you know, copyright, whatever. I, 
<laughs> you know, I looked, I looked at, I pulled up, you know, Audible this morning to look at my, my bookmarks and things. And, and it, it just says, it says road work finished. And I just was like, ugh, like, <laughs> I like, I'm finished. Uh, I like how Mel, this is your second episode, and you, you're going from Firestarter in this. Like the two. One day I will we'll talk about a book I like. Uh, we, <laughs> I, here's the other thing about this because we, we we were down with Firestarter. We were pretty down the Dark Tower movie. We're down on this, but there is a really good stretch we're about to hit here mm-hmm. of his '80s work that we were talking about the other day. And we're like, oh, there's also this and this and this. So next couple months is going to be a big Stephen King joyride. And um, Joy Right to Joy Land, another later day Stephen King book. Oh, you should boy. also check out. Oh, man. We'll be checking it out in about 2020. You really, it's like the spirit of Randall Colburn <laughs> still lives in the room and it's yeah. inhabiting you. It's great. Randall, Mike, and Dan are currently a Lollapalooza right now. But I think it's fair to say we're having our own Barton Palooza right now. So, oh, God. You know, who are the real winners and losers here? I who are the real know. zeros and villains here? Actually, it probably is us sitting here on a beautiful Sunday talking about <laughs> Road Work by Richard Bachman. Any other? Well, we'll definitely keep going back to Dawes inevitably throughout throughout the rest of the categories we've oh, got yeah. ahead. But any other final notes on the character of Dawes? Oh, I, actually, I just thought of something. How about his exposition sequences? Oh God. Well, so I also really like all of the laundry stuff, and I was really interested in the story of these two men who basically nurtured this young guy and sent him to college and all of that, and it was touching and I was interested and then it occurred to me that he was like had literally no reason for for telling this story (laughs) to this guy and they just decided to pass it off as like oh well he's just saying it because he's crazy that's how we justify this exposition he's crazy he literally says at the end like I really lost it there for a second like because I think there's a way to go about talking about the history of it from his point of view without having him sit down and say "Uh, actually I've heard Vinny I'm assuming he's known for a long time I started in the laundry 20 years ago, and this is a four straight pages. I'm like, oh my God, he's still talking about this. This mm-hmm. is a pretty, uh, this is a pretty impressive feat. Including his sexual practices. Of course. Well, well naturally, as you yeah. would naturally do with your coworker, even even back in the 70s, of course. Um, so that's a wrap on the BGD for now. Um, let's talk about some other, well, I, and I say characters in quotes. Uh, how about his wife, Mary, who again, Allison, I agree with you, that, that's, that, that discussion about their early marriage um, and the TV and like the race to see who can afford to, to buy the TV set was very innocent and very lovely and gave us a sense of of Dawes as this normal guy who you can actually feel you know sympathy for. But other than that, isn't Mary just there to ask him questions about what's happening and then ask him questions later on about why have you done this to me? Like, is there really a character there that's that seems to ring true to anybody? I don't know. There's something about Mary. Oh, oh boy! Sorry. Oh, nice. how long? <laughs> the ghost you, of Randall. How long are you waiting oh for God. that one? There you go, Randall. Um, I liked Mary despite the book's treatment of her. Mm. I think the book tries so hard to do what you're saying and is just awful to her and in some ways even betrays the character it's it's trying to build with her in moments where he says to her, like, oh, I was just thinking about that time we raised that money for the TV and she's sick and she just goes like, oh. Like, who would ever do that if your husband was like, I was just thinking about that great time we had together, the most romantic thing we ever did, and you're just like, oh, that. But I thought... I felt for her. Like I, she, I think her reaction was pretty realistic when she finds out everything's crashing down around her, and she, she's like, "Why, why the I'm fuck did you do this?" And I mean, I guess we can't really be close to her because we're too close to Bart, Big Bart. But uh, <laughs> Big Bart. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I definitely felt for her. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I just felt like her character was not given enough 
room to really grow. I was interested. There were these little flashes where it felt like I'm. I'm curious about this person. Mm-hmm. There's when she when we learn that she doesn't ever cry in front of other people, but this drives her to just like sit in the living room and cry, and that's the thing that's really frightening. Um, when she says, "Did you even think about me? I don't know how to be anything but your wife." Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's living with her parents, and then still finds like the decency to try to make sure he's not going to be alone at Christmas. And And the New um, Year's party, too. Yeah, Yeah. and the New Year's party. It just... I'm interested in that. Or when she's got the cold and he meets his buddy at the grocery store and she's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm just going to go upstairs so I don't get anybody sick. But please bring him over. Have you told him we're going to be neighbors yet? You're just like, what an asshole. Yeah. She's and, the coolest. She seems like a, just a, such a lovely person. And that's um, the thing that's really weird. I don't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no. Go but ahead. she just, like she is. She's just a really nice person. And he's, it's not like their marriage is falling apart. It didn't ever seem like that to me. You know, it, it seemed like... Like, he was falling apart and just didn't care about it anymore. But it didn't seem like anything, like, happened between them. I mean, other than, I mean, I know losing kids, like, I can't only imagine, like, how that puts a strain on your relationship or whatever. But, I mean, he, he has nothing but, like, kind things to say about her when he does talk about her. Um, well... Well, kind of. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah. It, yeah. Every yeah. single Every moment he time, he's just, he's like, you know, oh, she's really let herself go. I know. Well, uh, she's, not, she's not as slim as she used to be. She was slimmer slim. then. Yeah. Don't worry. I'd still hit it. But it's just not <laughs> and, and that's the, the thing. It's like, it's all this, it's all this like shit talk. But like, we only see her being like this, like, like bending over backwards to like, please him. And I, it's just like, I don't understand why. You feel like this, you know, like Matt, about it's because it's crazy. I, I know he's going crazy. Well, I think but, part of it is trying to. It's Stephen King, like wink nudging the husbands out there that are like, I know you guys feel this way, like you, yeah. which maybe she was a little bit, especially slimmer. a young king, yeah. you know, like you know, right, right, early, the early, he's like my wife's still young and hot, you know, but he's sorry, like, not a, you know, I wish everybody could be like Olivia, you know. Oh well, oh, we'll oh talk about. God. That's probably a good transition, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I just feel like. Mary deserved better from the book. Yes, and, yeah. and her husband. And her husband. Yeah, <laughs> both the both the character um, emotionally and the character on paper deserved better. Well, and let's let's try to save our servings of pound cake for later on. But let's talk about Olivia, or is that her name? We don't know for sure. So Olivia is a hitchhiker, a um, crazy late thirty something, um, picks up in his car. And offers to take her to a certain point, but then they end up going back to his place to stay the night. Um, that's the kind of description I have of this character <laughs> and King writing about this character. I wanna, real, <laughs> while we're talking about that car ride, I want to <laughs> highlight maybe the stupidest thing that happens in the book, uh, which is when he's driving 70 miles an hour. That made me laugh every oh. time. So fast. And everyone is honking, and, and she says quietly, I think you'd better let me out now. And he goes, I'm not going to get us in a car crash. Just go to sleep. And she goes, okay, and just goes to sleep. No, no. If you get in a car with crazy, you get out of the car. You get out of the crazy car. That's just what you do. He's like the purple man in um, Jessica Jones. Oh, God. Like, whatever he says, she's like, okay. And then, like, no, this doesn't feel like a real human being to me. Uh, Mel, any any opinions on um, what can we say about <laughs> really? Olivia? She's the manic pixie dream hitchhiker. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> great. I don't know. Is she ugh, she's twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, she does drugs. 
she's I think she represents some kind of living on hope redemption for for Bart he kind of just sets her up for life and she's supposed to be this pragmatic kind of person who hasn't had a lot of experiences yet but knows a bad deal or a good deal when she sees one and can somehow intuit that a he's good in bed and b he's not going to take advantage of her um she's she's a screen she's not I don't, I don't think there's much there no there's not no and this is also an instance of um like the convenient bouts of sanity that Dawes has where he's able to be sane just enough to manage to um somehow um go to sleep with this with this woman and the rest of the book he's just this crazy guy running around town losing his family and losing his job and losing people their jobs and he's all of a sudden able to be calm and kind of suave enough to um end up with this woman and it's which is just well nuts. And he also gets a hold of his marbles enough to be relatively comforting to a young yeah. woman who's i think we have to assume screaming into a payphone mm-hmm. about how she was raped conveniently raped to make sure that the We've, stakes are raised for our protagonist which just pisses me off to no end um yeah, and then all of a sudden he, he just knows to talk quietly because that's what you do when you're talking to a fucking spooked animal. Just, like, no. It's and like, no. it all about him anyway. Yeah. They don't even talk about the rape. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's There's just a lot totally turned around. He, to go back to Firestar, it's like he's you know trying to figure out how to unlock the safe, I guess, at that point of the uh, in the story. And she's such a vague character. She doesn't. Even, we don't even really know her name officially. I think maybe at the end we do. Maybe her name was Olivia all along. But it's weird. It's like why? Do, why are we fixating on this character? You think when he's like trying to set her up for life, you know, it's like well, is this not now like your child you're trying to take care of? Like it just, I just don't get what purpose she served to him. I think she was just there because King realized, okay, I've got to make this character a little bit more. Um, sympathetic or with some more of a purpose than just the fact that he's going to start blowing things up. Well, and again, and like as so as we come across like all these characters, and I was just I just kept thinking because of the way this starts with him buying all these weapons, mm-hmm. I just kept thinking, okay, like when's he going to start like killing people and doing things yeah, er, like erratic things, or like are we going to find out like, chapters later, like well, what happened to Olivia? Like Freddie, you know, did the uh, you know like I don't remember saying goodbye to her. We're we going to find out she's like buried under the bed or something like, and like none. None of this stuff ever happens and it just you know I, I it was the only time where i was like because like the long walk doesn't have a lot of supernatural elements to it but i wasn't like oh i hope there's a supernatural twist in this like this was just so boring <laughs> i really wanted I, I was like really wanting it to go that route and it just didn't and it wasn't like uh, yeah, yeah, I just couldn't that, handle it. We, we've read enough King where I, I don't, I'm not like bloodthirsty when it comes to Stephen King either. He can, he's written tremendous dramas, and this is just not one of them. Like, you know, Stand By Me is terrific, that novella. Um, the Shawshank Redemption novella, too. I mean, we can go on and on about how many, even the short stories, Women in the Room, yeah. um, Last Rung on the Ladder. Last Rung on the Ladder. Oh, yeah, Last Rung. You know, the, the only thing is just give me a good story at the end of the day is all I want. And I mean, give me characters. good characters. Exactly. I don't have to like Ooh. them. I don't even have to necessarily care about them, but they have to be compelling. Uh, let it's me believe they exist. Yes. You know? speaking, speaking of good characters, and uh, I kind of say this as a joke, but G. Valmont Thomas does a great <laughs> Magliori. See, I love uh, Magliori. I like Max. <laughs> as soon, I, like I remember Max. I was having 
having a conversation with Mike, I think, while I was reading it, and, and I had just gotten to Magliori's character. And, and again, Thomas does a gr- such a great job with it. I just... Because I, 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 we, we had just done the Kingies, and we were talking about, like, great minor characters, and I was like, oh, man, Magliori's like... I mean, I don't know if we're going to hit any others, but... He is up there for me. Like I just really enjoyed their conversations oh, yeah. together. Uh, he's I definitely could in, oh, yeah. see it. I felt like it, it would be in some sort of AMC drama. Yeah. It's like really bad, right? dark. Yeah, he's out of right. His depth, yeah. He goes to see him. where he's just there being crazy, and he has this fit and calls him a dork. And I can picture I can picture like ninety seven different character actors just staring at this guy <laughs> and then laughing hysterically because somebody called them a dork. You know who I got? I just loved it. I loved it. I got Danny Aiello as a... Uh, oh, really? Boy. That's what I pictured in my head. Danny oh, Aiello man. from Do the Right Thing from uh, The Last Dawn by yeah, Mario Puzo. Uh, like, 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 the pro- like the professional, right? Yeah, the professional, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, like that, the, he's literally that character in The Professional. Yeah, that's... that's and, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I love Magler. Oh, I love how he kind of acts as the reader, maybe unintentionally, where he just looks at this guy and is like, you're, you're, you're a fruitcake. You're a fruitcake, Dawes. Mm-hmm. Repeatedly, and and I hundred percent agree that. But uh, yeah, I, and I really enjoyed those sections though because because it was like here's this like caricature of a person, but he seems to have the most the the most grasp on you know reality yeah. and what's really going on with Dawes and still like helps him, but. You know, he's like, I don't, I don't want to ever see you again. But you know, then of course, like, he's like, all right, well then, let's meet next Tuesday. Like, why I, I don't do know. I like you? I don't know. For some reason, kind of yeah. like you. Hey. And I guess it's like, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, you know, because Dawes is like everybody sees, you know, a little bit of themselves in Dawes because he's supposed to speak for every, like, like the man that's, you know, been handed the raw deal. You know. Well, that goes back to what Allison said. This is not a good person, but it's a good character. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. It's yeah. Most- well, and I, I was so interested in those scenes because. I could tell that he was intelligent, um, quick, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. picks up on these things, uh, insightful, um, funny. And then the story about the dog is just A-plus yes. stuff. <laughs> um, ju- and so it was great. And then I just found myself wishing that I could just have, like, a short story that's just about this crime boss who has this guy walk into his office one day that is the story i want to read i want that in some king anthology where it's just like a little tiny bit and we find a way to make that a complete story because that i was interested in yeah i really felt like that and that's for me like there this book was just a bunch of little short stories that could have been great on their own mm. Like it just even just like the the whole party se- sequence when he goes to the party and he goes you know was it was on L- LSD or something or he's, 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 he's he's like, oh, yeah and like Esk. I just felt like there like or or even just like the hitcher thing you know like like there's a lot of good ideas in there but they're just not executed that well again I can't believe that this could have been his second novel under the name Stephen King after yeah Gary. so like that's I'm sorry crazy to me. when exactly did he write this like I said he wrote it before Carrie even came out. He had was written Sam's Law and this. Uh, had we not? Oh, no, this is no, early on. Okay. This, is, this is early on. So that makes sense because, you know, I mean, like, again, he's really early writings. Yeah. Because so this is coming. And, and like, how does, well, again, it's not really disappointing because at the time, people didn't know that Bachman was king when this came out, right? No. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been disappointing for people, but it would have been disappointing had we known. Well, it would have been coming disappointing on the heels looking to read a good book, I think. But. And, you know, it makes Firestarter look great. <laughs> 
know? And listen, the other thing is, we're really going, it really does. It elevates literally everything that came before him, except for rage, of course. But uh, this what is. What Mac and I like rage? Why be, I, what if we were you know, no we have way. to do We have to do it, because I wasn't on that episode. We would have to do another episode of like a face off <laughs> between the do, pros and cons. I would be uh, incredibly interested to understand why. That's I, what I'll say. I think it would be this group here would actually do that episode. Rage take two. Enraged. In, in the, the rage arrange. It's just gonna the rage too, Carrie. It's just gonna be Mel and I's like inner dialogue saying, like, Well, what do you think, Freddie? Uh, you know? Like, <laughs> like, well, George. We, we literally have to be crazy to to, to have liked that now. No, crazy. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I cannot wait to read that book. But uh yeah, yeah. Um well, well yeah, Maglory is great. And Maglory um, also I wanna say is also very um when I was reading this, he reminded me of a certain uh, mob boss that pops up in a Dark Tower novel later on. I don't know if oh, it, yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Anybody know what I'm talking I don't want to get into too many spoilers. I do. But so, yeah, a, I don't want to go into that. But yeah, I, you, that did, did remind that me of that. Yeah. yeah, which I thought was pretty cool. Why, why does Magliori actually end up helping? Is it because of the money? money. He, he gives him a ton of money. Even yeah. though earlier, he's like, even if you had the money, I wouldn't help you. Because I think later on, they, they, they go in a little more detail. I'm, I'm doing him a disservice here as to why he finally relents and says, fine, I'll let you do this. But um, at the end of the day, it's ultimately just to end the book. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, fine. Okay. We, we've got you know this January twenty third to go. All right, here we go. Um, so we talked about uh, Magluor. We've talked about Livy. We've talked about Mary. Let's talk about the confusing character that is. Is it Steve Ordner? Or, or I know it's Steve Ordner. Ordner. Yeah, Steven. And that Steven. is the the overlord of um, the big company that that also runs the Blue Ribbon Laundry. Um, any thoughts on what King was trying to do with the character of Ordner? Because my thing is, obviously, he's he's presented to from Da's point of view is to be this real like privileged asshole who doesn't care about anybody. And that might be true, but aren't you kind of siding with where Ordner is on all this well, in relation yeah. to what, how Da's is going about his business and how his personal business and how it reflects the professional business? Uh, yeah. Right. Yep. He is literally doing his job. Mm-hmm. And whether it is genuinely to try to save other people their jobs and keep the business open, or just because he gets paid to do it because it's his job, it's what he should do. Yeah. He's, yeah. Like, his whole thing is, we should probably open another laundromat or laundry station, whatever you want to call it, so that people don't lose their jobs and also so the business keeps going. That should probably happen. That doesn't seem like a particularly comfort. Like, no. is he kind of a dick? Sure. Who yeah. cares? Although I don't know, I, he doesn't actually really behave like a dick either. He just he seems to be genuinely kind of friendly, well, manipulative. He's manipulative, but like yeah, you gotta get ahead in this business. And, and, and is it really clear? So in the beginning of the book, like when he, when he keeps having the conversations in his head about like. Well, if I do this, you know, um, you know, I can basically he like tries to work out like how he's going to actually be able to buy this place by like playing the game. But then he he ends up just losing it. And then so it's like it wasn't even like he was purposely trying to do that originally. They just he just loses the deal by making the wrong decisions. Right. No, he was lying to Ordner. He, he was oh, deliberately yeah. letting the deal fall through. He had already decided. It's confusing, but yeah. Well, but but so that's what I'm saying. So with Ordner, though, at the end, like when he's like, "Why did you do this? You were on track to like do this and this and get this, and we were going to make you like a you know VP or whatever it is." And and you're sitting there going like, "Oh, like yeah." He was like on the fast fast track. Like I don't think that I think Ordner might be a jerk, but I think that they were going to make him like give him a better job. But like I don't know. 
it's all about the moral high ground. Yeah, Practical yeah. Oh, God, consequences, yeah. be damned. Like, his victory is getting Ordner to say, no, I don't care about you as an individual. At some point, he, he like, bullies and, him into saying that. It's like, congratulations, but now you just cost God knows how many people their jobs. And I know they got their stipends and stuff like yeah, that, but that's not going to last like, you the yeah, rest of your life. Employment, that'll be fine. That's the thing. <laughs> it, welfare money. This isn't like he lost his job and it was just him losing his job. It, this wasn't like a Jerry Maguire thing where he's like, everybody come with me. And if they don't, at least he made his stand. He, you know, he submitted his blue proposal, whatever the fuck it was from Jerry Maguire. Yeah, he forces them to be he's like, have his purity of, of ideology. Yeah, he like, like, burns the place down, essentially. Well, but, and he worked for two people who started this business, who he seems to love, and who took great care of him. And then they die, and he's like, well, fuck it. Yeah, and like, he's not going to take care of those people now like, and do right by them. You know, like, yeah, I almost wanted him to have, like, a mission statement, like, in Maguire. And, like, <laughs> we, keep, we keep bringing up Jerry Maguire the rest of this episode. But, like, Jerry yeah. Magliori. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just don't really, I don't like Dawes. No, <laughs> no. And that's the thing, that's the other thing. So is King still trying to make Dawes, like, the hero of the novel at this point? I think so. Yes. But to everybody here, I feel like he's... He's making everybody else right, and Dodge is a hundred percent wrong. But but King in nineteen seventy, whenever the hell seventy three, whenever he wrote this, was thinking, no, this is this is the guy, this is the man standing up for the little man. Well, but, uh, and, and again, I didn't read Rage, but like it's the same thing with Rage, where like you, like you guys are like, are we supposed to think you know yes. he's cool, and you know we're we supposed to be with this character on this journey, and and as if he's the protagonist, even though he's the one holding up this, this class, and that it was like really muddy, and I feel like it's the same thing here, where you know you're, he's like shoving this protagonist down our throats, but really we all kind of agree with like Mary and Ordner and all these other people that yes. are like, man, you're just ruining. Your your life and like you're doing it to yourself at this point i know i know the road works coming through and they're gonna have to move but you know big deal Here's like man up thing. if he first God. of all just he should actually have gone to a doctor right like therapist psychiatrist whatever yeah. such a Don't, stigma in this book though like, i know yeah, yeah. oh my yeah. God. God, and, no, and i guess at the time Maybe this really was. He could have gone, gone to see a pastor. I don't care. Yeah, but like yeah. talk to someone, right? Mm-hmm. But failing that, what if he had just gone to his shitheel boss who he doesn't like and said, listen, I think I'm kind of cracking up. I feel like I can't make this deal for the laundromat or do anything to get out of my house because my kid died there. So I don't want to leave. So this is my whole life and I don't want to leave. Can we figure something out? And if they're this giant corporation, maybe they, I mean, one option is they maybe could have gone to the city and said, hey, we're going to pull our business. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Maybe they wouldn't have, but then at least he would have tried to do something other than just fuck over literally everyone in his entire life. Stephen King just can't ever give anything to the corporation. It's all about the individual. He would Mm -hmm. never have trusted them. Stephen King hates hush money so much. But even then, if they had said they were going to try to help and then betrayed him, I still wouldn't have thought he was right, but there at least would have been something other there would have been something else there would have been something going on that was maybe interesting yeah yeah like i would have cared i would have cared more about dawes just it, it seemed like well you know like he really tried and they just screwed him at every corner yeah, but, but we really haven't is, seen yeah. that yeah it's just like it's like no man you could have taken a bunch of different avenues and you kind of just allowed these things to kind of happen so you could feel justified in being defiant and I, I don't I don't like that. I, I think that's just a shitty way out. 
What are we supposed to think of the fight with Vinny in the mall, which is again sort of echoing the Ordner thing? Like, I feel like that was maybe meant to be a little more ambiguous because even Dawes is like, maybe this isn't the way to do it. Like, the, the, Dawes is, is, is questioning himself a lot throughout the book, but then he ends up doing it, and you're supposed to believe, oh no, this is the right move, Dawes. But with Vinny, um, yeah, because he talks about how Vinny talks about how he he got promoted, mm-hmm. and has a new position, it's getting paid a lot more. He really he seems to be it. very happy. Yeah, yeah. And but Dodge can't help but put him down. And then well, the Christmas spirit curdled in his eyes. Ooh, that's right. <laughs> Mall Santas beware. <laughs> and yeah, so I don't know. What, what do we make of? Is Vinny like the young idealist? Is Vinny? Is do you I think know. that Dodge is ultimately jealous of Vinny? And well, or Vinny is his wife. Right. Like, or is he right? Yeah. I think like he I think he sees Vinny as like himself before he knew what the world was gonna do. You know what I mean? Like like he does. He's like he's like, if you stay on this track, you're gonna turn basically into me and you're gonna you're gonna realize like there is nowhere like they're they're keeping you down, they're pushing you down. This isn't really good, but you think it's good because it's all they're allowing you to have. And Vinny, where Vinny is just honestly happy and 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 complacent and like in a good place in his life. And he can't see that because he's just he's just not that anymore. He's just not there. And yeah, like again, that whole sequence, I was just like, "Man, you're such a jerk. You're, such, yeah. you're just being such a jerk to, to Vinny." <laughs> like I, I just it didn't like him again. It's incredible that you don't feel any sympathy for a guy who lost two children. Right. Like that, really, no, that's I, really. I, I didn't feel anything no, for yeah. Dawes anyway. I was just like, just you know, blow yourself up already. So is his ideal then? <laughs> is his ideal workplace the one he grew up in, where it's it's like not a fully socialist model, but the, your boss sends you to college and everybody knows each other's name, and so Vinny's doing it wrong just because his bosses don't personally care about him. Like that seem that's the only thing that's weird. Like I, I guess because again, I guess when when Dawes had started there, this was the fifties. This was like you know homespun America at the time. You know, so time, the times they are changing. I'm surprised that's not used time, in this book. This giant corporation doesn't lay off a bunch of people. Doesn't like they seem to basically just be letting this business run the way that it runs. Yeah. Um, and oh no, now we have to relocate. So they're just trying to make sure they relocate. It's <laughs> like you know. can lay right? me off, but you better know my name. Yeah, I don't even know what to compare it to. Like, I'd like it's to ask wild. Mary what she thinks of Vinny's new job because She's I'm upstairs. pretty sure that she would be like, "Wait, I'm sorry." There, <laughs> really, you, like, could, you could have just done your fucking job, and none of this would have happened. Really? Okay, great. Merry no, Christmas. Because when she asked Dawes what, what happened, he would have said something like, "Oh, he swung at me first or something like that. If we, you know, and then Mary would have been like, "All right, well." And I like I'll how Dawes has like no prospects at all. Like he can't get a job, and you're just like, well. Like, are you trying? Like, again, like, no, I just, I, yeah, it's, it, and, and to your point, the reason I feel like King didn't do any of those things is because, like, then he wouldn't have a reason to complain. He wouldn't have the, all these things that be like, happening to him or whatever, you know, it wouldn't have made for that interesting character, I guess, that he was trying to write. But yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, I, mean, I have a question. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think this would be interesting if we were supposed to feel this way about Dawes? If, if the book was the story of a guy who thinks he's taking a moral stand and everyone around him knows he's not, I yes. think so. Yeah. One, sure. yes, agreed. Yeah. So I think it's I like, too. yeah, so you're like, okay, who wrote the back of this book? Now, granted, I went in completely blind, but I never got the feeling that we were supposed to feel no, that way. Me neither. And, and if we were, that would have that been way more interesting, I think, yeah. He, King, throughout the whole book, keeps giving himself these outs of people saying, you know, you sound crazy, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, I know it doesn't make any sense, but again, are we supposed to side with Dawes on any of the, any of it? That's the thing too. And 
it just drove me crazy for about 400 pages. How does he stop caring about what everyone in his life thinks about him, and yet he still refuses to drink Southern Comfort in 7-Up? Oh, God. He he doesn't care what anybody thinks about him, and yet he goes to a restaurant and he still drinks scotch? Oh, but at that party sequence, he he is drinking Southern Comfort. Oh, yeah. But that's because of the purple pill he takes. Oh, yeah, where he he can be himself on the the pills. Uh, What kind of message are we sending here? (laughs) And let's go back to Mary for a second because she is so patient in this book. Again, they'll have a nice conversation for about 30 seconds, and then all of a sudden she will he will be unfairly triggered by her, and he will just lash out, and she just sits there and is like, George, you know, Bart, whoever the fuck his name is in his book. <laughs> Bart, George, Dawes, Georgie, you know. Um, sorry, Mary, we, we love you and we feel bad for you. Uh, let's, let's talk about another member of the, the Dawes family, uh, the character of Charlie, who is only alluded to in flashbacks and dreams. Charlie's obviously, well, maybe not so obviously, the reason behind, the ultimate reason behind why Dawes is, has losing it, is losing it. It's, it's, it's trigger point. Um, I'm trying to think of where to go about how to go about talking about Charlie is his character used effectively. I guess is the, is the death used effectively. I think we, we've kind of come up with some answers to that. Well, it's, but. it's weird. There's like a moment where he even says like, I don't know where this is in the book because the audible has the chapters and not the, the dates, but he says like Charlie had begun dying long before he got sick and there was no putting a stop to it. And at this point, obviously he's just like, we're all like, once we're born, we're dying. And like, it's just this dread, uh, you know, the world's awful. And, and, and like some of the early dream stuff, I was like, okay, like I was interested. I was like, okay, like what happened? Like, was it something that he did that was responsible for his death? And maybe that's why he just over the, put over the edge and stuff. And, and then, yeah, when it's, when it's cancer or whatever, like, now, like I, I mean, like you know, like, you know we, we we've lost someone to cancer. Like, yeah. We lost our mother to cancer, like when we were like twenty five, or I was twenty five, and like I just, I mean, it's hard. But and again, well, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not like, really trying to bring it home here. No, it, it, I just, I don't think it's done. I don't think it's it's it's. I don't think they use that character in a great way. I don't yeah. think it it doesn't. It's not there enough for him to really have. The, the turns and the changes that, that happen to him. I feel like nothing happens to him in his life. I don't know. Maybe we just have it really put together, but you know, I'm not going and buying guns and you know, uh, I don't have a you know grand day job, but like, I don't know. I just, I just didn't, couldn't connect this character. Cause I just That's was like, true. what is yeah. so awful that, that you, and you have like your wife's nice and like, you, like why can't you get, past this and i know like losing a child is different than losing a parent but like i don't know i i and i'm not trying to be like unsympathetic to to that situation but i feel like his character is just not doesn't earn it unless he was always crazy which they kind of briefly alluded to yeah. later on, and maybe that's just looking for reason into your I just, maybe i just didn't buy that and that's why i was like trying yeah. to find a, a trigger or a real reason but it just makes it makes sense if he's just like a little off balance yeah. the whole time. But I don't know. I like I like the bits where he talks about you know the cells being the size of a walnut isn't fair. But he just never earns it because he doesn't spend any time with Charlie. We get the moment where Mary says like he was your son, he wasn't our son. But we never get that impression. Yeah, yeah and there's, that, that gets brought up a couple times in the book too. That that Charlie always favored his. He was more of like a father, a daddy's boy. Yeah. Then was it what's that website called again, Alice? Daddy. Dream, Dream Daddy. Dream Daddy. Dream Daddy. But he was always he was always closer to his father, and I felt they could have explored 
that angle a little bit more too, maybe. And there's another part when they get the diagnosis and Bart says, or it's written, um, his first thought, bright and clear, never to be forgiven was, thank God it's not me. And again, that's something that Dawes was never able to forget. But like that, that feeling isn't really felt later on either. So that's yeah. not, there's still a lot of unexplored angles, not I just with this character, of, but. I sort of wonder if maybe, and this is, it's not fair to attempt to psychoanalyze an mm. author, especially many decades after the fact. But it, I just, it's hard to not wonder if maybe King wanted to write a book about grief and then just couldn't, like couldn't go there if what he was experiencing was too personal to really get into in a way that's, survivable you know when you when you endure something that's traumatic for you um some people can express that through art and some people it's like a button that you just never push Mm -hmm. um because this doesn't feel like a story about grief to me it feels like a story about a dick yeah you know and like that's not and knowing why he wrote it and when he wrote it um, it just doesn't make sense. Grief does not seem to be one of his defining characteristics. Yeah, like I think, like if Stephen King wrote this now, I, I could easily see it being like wonderful. Yeah, because it would be from a perspective of an older person too. Right, he's written some great stories about grief. Yeah, you know, or God, just like Last Rung on the Ladder. Yeah, and, and like that is gorgeous. Well, and that was shoot. We'll see. That's like the Last Rung on the Ladder is heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, and like, and he wrote that really early on yeah. too, right? A woman in the room. Yeah, is about a mother dying of cancer. <laughs> right. So I mean, the, but the thing is about those; those are soft stories. You know, I mean, those are those are not rage filled, well, like anger. Let's blow up yeah. bridges. And I guess, I guess, again, if you're if you what you're saying is he we're supposed to believe that he was always off kilter and then that's the reason why we just we he's not connected we're not connecting with this character in that sense but i, I don't know it's, it's, it's just not well he's not well written Dawes is not well written at all i don't think if we haven't hammered that point home yeah i know so i just <laughs> just want to bring that up did again you know? um did you know yeah he's not a very well written character and then there's a couple other characters we can talk about um we can have you know johnny and there's the the, the accident with the truck blah, 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 blah. prize winning journalist dave my boy albert. my boy dave albert who shows up later on street priest. um a fascinating character <laughs> you know he was the uh I got a lot of things to say about him. Just kidding. Nothing to say about Dave Albert. <laughs> it's funny because he shows up in the very beginning. They it's say, like, yeah, you know, he, he would actually, they, they were like, you know, and Albert actually met up with this person later on in the book, but he wouldn't remember him. Well, I totally he, forgot about this character until the end where he goes, oh, that's, and then they did meet earlier on. Like, oh yeah, I totally forgot about this 400 pages it's later. so dumb. It's, there's, there's something to say about Phil Drake. He's foiled to Bart because he, he does good things while cozying up to the rich assholes. That's true. All right. That's all there is to say about Phil. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He, yeah. I, I, he, a plus. He seemed, like, it was, he seemed like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life. Like he just kind of shows up at this party. Oh, hey, everybody. Yeah. Like, no, when he showed up, I, I all I could think of was like, was what, Leland? Uh, Leland Palmer? No. Uh, Leland Gaunt. What's the name? Yeah. Oh, from Nevil from, from Things? From Nevil Things. Oh, okay. I was thinking that this was like, again, it's me wanting there to be some kind of supernatural turn. I was like projecting on this character like, oh, who's this? Like, is he really there? Like, oh, he's just in the too. room oh, and yeah. he didn't, he didn't see him at party. first and then all of a sudden he just sees him in the corner. Uh, Initially, I and thought then, it was one of the fake psychiatrist names he gave 
Mary was Phil Drake. He comes up yeah. with some uh, yeah. great yeah. fake names. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he's a great yeah. fake namer. Uh, I will give Dawes that. He is an incredible bullshitter. Like, he doesn't miss a beat well, when that, he's talking to his bosses or his wife. The, um, when he's in the gun shop talking about his cousin yeah. who's going hunting with Donald Trump's large adult son in Mexico <laughs> to kill zebras and shit. I do like, I was just like, but off the top of your head, that's what you Okay. I guess that you know how to spin a web. So it's almost um, a sociopath, if anything else, at this point, too. He just doesn't, he's just able to come up with this stuff and doesn't give a shit. But. I know you weren't actually talking about Leland Palmer, but Leland Palmer made me think of, I actually thought a little bit about Twin Peaks when I was reading this. Yeah. Because at least there's a, there's one big diff, well, no, there are countless big differences, <laughs> but there's a, there's a difference that I thought of, which is that. Bart, Fred, George, Andrew Johnson, Jingle Heimerschmidt is walking around acting like a crazy person. And the people in his life seem from for quite a while to be like, oh, everything's fine. And then finally, eventually they're like, is there something wrong with you? Like, what is going on? Which makes him a direct, um, the direct opposite of Dougie, who is wandering around his life. And no one seems to think it's weird that he is just non-functional now. Um, can we just talk about Dougie for another couple hours? But I thought but I was thinking about Twin Peaks because it's interesting to me how long and this does happen in life, somebody can go being not quite right before someone in their life is comfortable to say enough say something mm-hmm. about it. And I don't think King is actually interested in exploring this in this book. No. Um but every time someone is finally like, Are you okay, man? You seem really not well. I'm like, thank God. We're not alone. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, he must he must be doing really really poorly for him to be this level of nuts right like he can't be that efficient at hiding it I would say so so it's a relief when people finally start talking about it and I, I think we've beaten these characters to death and the only thing to do now is to bury them in the cemetery what's the bottom of the truth well sometimes that is better the person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. So I feel like this cemetery, the equivalent of this cemetery would be like um, when when Cain killed Abel and there was just one body in the cemetery. What... (laughs) How about that biblical reference there? <laughs> There's not, this is not a very frightening book. Well, not, you know, there's some frightening aspects we'll talk about in Pound Cake. But this is not a scary book, per se. There's not a lot of scary moments, per se, per se, per se, per se. Anybody have anything to, to bury in the cemetery here? The book? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 like, I don't, like, I, I really don't. Like, I don't know, like, you know. Even 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 the big blowout at the end, and like when people are dying and stuff, it's not scary. It's just no. you're just like, oh, good, we're finally here. The, there was something, and Mel also brought. So, if you want to talk about the dream, the dog dream, oh, maybe. Oh, I I wasn't going to talk about the dream. I oh. was going to talk about Olivia's trip when she is tripping and plunges a forearm out of a sink. Oh, <laughs> yes. I actually, that's the only thing I did write down for that, too. And I, I couldn't, I, you know, my notes on Audible and the, the bookmarks was, you know, a mess. But I, I had that. Olivia plunges arm out of sink, and I didn't, I was like, well, I don't even know what this is referencing. <laughs> you know what I thought about when I read that? Was the the Pincho uh, scene in Firestarter oh, yeah, yeah. where he throws his hand in the, in the, in the sink. Maybe it's his forearm. Whoa! 
King's Dominion, guys. Olivia was in the shop, guys. <laughs> I think it's clear. She took the lot six yeah. experiments. Charlie changed her name. Um, oh, no. I, I guess I was a little spooked by um, when Johnny is in the hospital and his brother is there and doesn't know what's going on. And then the priest comes in mm-hmm. and um, Arnie starts basically just losing his mind. And then, you, then he runs away and you hear like this primal scream of grief from down the hallway. I mean, I guess that was unsettling, um, particularly then because... Uh, BGD goes back to work and it's like, oh well, I'm I'm not sure if he died or not, but it looks bad. I'm like, well, if his brother gave like a primal scream of despair, I think you can bet that something bad happened. What if the doctor's like, he's gonna be okay? <laughs> no, no. Oh, Dawes, we um, love you. And I guess maybe the drowning, the drowning dream. With the lifeguard in short. Yeah. yeah, that's and a the, little... Yeah. the unnecessary reference to his giant dick and balls. Oh, God. Yeah, I had, I had that down. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's coming for Pound Cake. Yeah. But. Oh, I'm yes. glad you remember that because I, all I had in my notes was it was like lifeguard's penis. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite guy by Voices albums, actually, lifeguard's penis. Um, <laughs> There's also the dream where he dreams about killing himself over and over. Oh, yeah. That one's yeah. very fun. That's more like, yeah, do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was so tired of the book. Um, and then there's the, the dream where he dreams about Maglior's uh, dog story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the, and the like, watch out for the dog biting and everything else. Oh, I love that story. Um, Wow. Well, it's just like dead silent it. in the cemetery, folks. Well, There's the... Uh, <laughs> no ghosts roaming and no zombies, you know, haunting. That. Like, it's, just, it's just it's just nothing there. There's just a couple well, like I, I even got that backwards. I, if you look off in the horizon, I think the sun is rising. And as we all know, King likes to do most, most of his work during the day. And he likes to do that work on his um, computer. So let's talk about the word processor of the god. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here... You hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Is there anything? Again, once again. Like, I, I do have some, some things here. You do? Okay. It's king. You know, you know it's no, like there's it's some, some goals swimming in the sea of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. how that works sometimes. Um, anybody want to kick this off with uh, the word processor here? Or should I, I can start it off, I guess. Go for it. <laughs> it's just a little thing here. This is in the last section. Um, this is when he goes to the grocery store. And this woman dies in front of him. Has a, I think he has a seizure and passes away. And I like this. I just like this 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 uh, wordage by King. He writes, "A middling sized crowd had formed around the young woman lying among the coffee cans, which had been the last part of the world over which she had exercised her human prerogative to rearrange. Now she had become part of that other world, and would be rearranged by other humans." I just thought that was a nice, interesting way of describing death and what happens to you after you die. I did feel like. Again, I, I think that he's best at these little subtle moments, and I don't have like a specific writing, unfortunately. But in Audible's chapter nineteen, <laughs> whoa, uh, <laughs> chapter what? Nine, oh, chapter nineteen. Ah. And there really aren't any like actual chapters in this book, so it's you know, we're reaching there. That's a that's a two three seven. That's probably somewhere uh, in November. I'm assuming. Yeah, um, but just when he starts to. He kind of he's just talking about stuff, and then all of a sudden he just starts talking about suicide for a good page, and then he's like, "How did I get there?" 
Mm-hmm. And it, it's to me, it was very much a stepfather moment, which we know Stephen King's a big fan of, and obviously he wrote this before that That's came right. out. But it's one of those like, wait, who, who am I? You're referring who, who to Joseph Rubin's The Stepfather, starring Terry O'Quinn. Yeah, yeah, Terry O'Quinn, love, love him, love him. Anyways, um, yeah, so I, I, I liked those moments where he would ramble off and be like, you know, uh, where were you there, George? You know, like, you know. Um, but again, like, that doesn't ever really go anywhere for me. So and just, of course, um, you know. also Terry O'Quinn will be appearing in the film Silver Bullet, which is based on oh, Stephen man. King's Cycle of the Werewolf. So keep an eye out for that episode yeah. coming up in a few months. I'm getting pretty good at this, actually. I love, love, Terry, well. <laughs> love Terry O'Quinn. Uh, anybody else have some passages they'd like to, to read from? I've got Allison? one. Um, this is from pretty close to the beginning of the book, actually. Um, and it's when he's sitting at work, he's thinking about the park, and then he thinks about the movies, um, and it's sort of near the end of that. Inside, the auditorium was huge and dark and filled with the smell of dusty velvet. When you sat down, you didn't crack your knees on the seat in front of you, and there was a huge cut glass chandelier overhead. You never wanted to sit under it, because if it ever fell on you, they'd have to scrape you up with a putty knife. The grand was... He looked at his wristwatch guiltily. Almost 40 minutes had gone by. Christ, that was bad news. He had just lost 40 minutes, and he hadn't even been thinking that much, just about the park and the Grand Theater. Is there something wrong with you, Georgie? There might be, Fred. I guess there. May, I guess maybe there might be. He wiped his fingers across his cheek under his eye and saw by the wetness on them that he had been crying. Um, it just sounds yeah. like a nice movie theater. Also, <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful piece of writing. It's, it is. Uh, it really is. And I would be very interested in that character if anything like that ever happened again. And they start yelling at somebody later on for no reason. You know, we we have a kingy for uh, best location. You know, uh, uh, best setting. So keep that movie theater in mind. <laughs> That's right. The eighties. It beats like dairy and everything else. Oh, the movie theater that they talk oh, about. The Road dark horse of this Road Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Out of nowhere. Movie theater from Roadwork. <laughs> Oh, Castle uh, Rock and, and Derry offset each other in the, the theater one. I did like this line where he just talks about um, children. He says, children turn their backs so easily to the game, the puzzle, and then death. Mm. And um, He definitely had death on the mind. About Charlie, and, but, yeah, um, you know, again, there's, 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 there's little, little things here and there that I'll drop in there and where we see the future king. We wouldn't have a podcast about the guy if he didn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some, if he wasn't able to write some great books and have some great prose. Uh, Mel? Yeah, I have one during that argument where Mary shouts, he was your son at him. Um, he goes, they looked at each other, stunned as if they had discovered for the first time that there was more to them than they had ever dreamed of. Vast white spaces on some interior map. Which is kind of like a nod to like maybe you should build out these characters more, Stephen. But <laughs> there's a lot. Of, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it later. Um, and then on on page one fifty nine of my pocket books, um, just a little bit of self reflection with Barton. But at night, when when with the temperatures down in the twenties, with sunset a bitter orange line in the west, and thousands of stars already prickling coldly through the firmament overhead, he could measure the road's progress alone and undisturbed. The moments he spent there were becoming very important to him. He suspected that in an obscure way, the moments spent on the observation platform were recharging him, keeping him tied to a world of at least half sanity. In those moments before the evening's long plunge into drunkenness had begun, before the inevitable urge to call Mary struck, before he began the evening's activities in self-pity land, he was totally himself, coldly and blinkingly sober. He would curl his hands over the iron pipe and stare down at the construction until his fingers became as unfeeling as the iron itself, and it became impossible to tell where the world of himself, the world of human things, ended and the outside world of tractors and cranes and observation platforms began. Hmm. In those moments, there was no need to blubber or pick over the rickrack of the past that jumbled his memory. In those moments, he felt his self pulsing warmly in the cold indifference of the early winter evening, a real person, perhaps still whole. 
if we could have just felt more of these contemplations. I like how you throughout. shrugged at the end of that. Like, I guess that counts. I guess that counts. If only we could have felt this character a little more, like you said, Allison. Like, where is this character throughout the book? But um, he's crazy. If you didn't understand that, uh, wouldn't it be great if we were just like, oh, we don't have this many of these, and that, that many of these, and then we spent the next four hours just reading chunks of the book that we liked, to, uh, only to discover we <laughs> oh actually God. secretly we, loved this. We've book. got, or we've got like a, we've actually got like a big Stephen King library of our own here in the studio, and we just start pulling up passages from like Lisi's story. I'm like, well, this is a great <laughs> thing he wrote 25 years later, and 35 years later. Um, I do have one last thing I do want to read here. This is about this is when he takes a trip to the department store. I think this is just before he gets punched by Vinny. Great, great scene, as we've all discussed before. Um, he writes, uh, Young boys and their fathers were standing by the wooden picket fence that surrounded the, 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 the uh, display. This is the Santa display. And he felt a warm surge of love for them that was untainted by envy. He felt he could have gone to them, told them of this love for them, his thankfulness for them in the season. He would also have urged them to be careful. I like that passage. It's a nice little passage. It is a nice little passage. Um, anybody else have any anything for the word processor of the God? That's no. a, that deafening silence <laughs> is, oh, uh, is is obviously about apparent. The ending of the book, huh? The very um, end. Nope. Um, Which we didn't really talk about. We oh, we'll, we'll get yeah, we can okay. talk if, if you want. If we we actually cut there if you want to. We can cut there right now if you want to talk about. The end of the book. Do you want to go into the? Is this the epilogue you're talking about, Mel? Or are you no, talking just about the, just the? How the book ends. We didn't. Yeah. Really... Well, let's let's get to the. Um, let's see here. We can talk about that right now. Actually, let's go ahead and talk about. We even talk about how Barden uses those explosives and blows up <laughs> the, the construction site. But again, you know. Oh he, no, that is not in word processor of the no. god. No. Yeah. Demolition. There it is. Oh, uh, elegant, boy. elegant storytelling there. But yeah, we we should probably talk about the climax of the book <laughs> as it is. We so control alt delete the word processor of the god. That's, to that's, talk about that's true. This shit. So. We, we we reach the end of the book. Um, Dawes says all this all this ammunition. He's you know rigged his house to explode. He's got explosives set up around the house. And here we go, Mel. You want to start it off? <laughs> no, I just I just want to know what people thought. Also, couldn't believe his house was actually bugged. What? No, that's the other thing that was like just don't bug the guy. Don't don't try to put off this asshole protagonism thing on. I I, I didn't. That that was goofy to me. I thought I'm just gonna read like the last little little bit. Of okay, so the, of yeah, so what's happened is so at this point the, the cops all show up and there's a big standoff there in yeah. which I got an I incredible like line that I have to read here too. I did like I, he he shoots the gun that that powerful gun and says at something at one point he says like you know for all he knew the bullet was still going it was like that powerful it like popped through everything, um, but yeah just here it says. Um, Peripherally, peripherally, you can do it. Here we go. Shit. (laughs) Peripherally, the viewer is aware that the garage has been destroyed in a single ripping blast for a second, it seems, and slow motion replays prove that the eye's split second impression is correct, that the roof of the house has lifted off its eaves like a Saturn rocket. It's kind of remind me of the house on Maple Street, that that imagery of... Uh, oh, the Chris Van Allsburg yeah, yeah, picture yeah. that he yeah. uses in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Nightmares and Dreamscapes, Firestarter, yeah. he, he does the same thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he lifts up the chimney yeah. or something. Yeah. 
how, how convenient. Well, even Lot though this, this was written, obviously, way, way earlier than that. But, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, then the entire house blows outward and upward, shingles flying, hunks of wood lofted into the air, and then returning to earth. Something that looks like a quilt twisting lazily in the air like a magic carpet as debris rattle to the ground and a thudding contraptional drum roll. There is stillness. Then the shocked, tear-streaming face of Mary Dawes fills the screen. She's looking with drugged and horrified bewilderment at the force of microphones being thrust into her face, and we have been brought safely back to human things once more. Uh, it's actually not that. That's pretty good, I guess. That's fine. The house blew up. That's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the house went up. That'll do, babe. That'll do. Well, it's 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 also weird because like, you know this is the, the whole book's about him wanting to keep the house, and then I, I guess there is a line where he says like you know they tried to like take him, they tried to take the house, but he's like I'm gonna take it, you know. Yeah, he, it's it's him taking that control over the situation, but you're like, well, all you do is making it easier for them to like build this road. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just just well, after the explosion, like, all right, let's clean it up, boys. <laughs> They're like, oh, he did a lot of work for us. My favorite part of that finale is when the reporter. The great Dave Albert, by the way, shows up. Does Dave Albert show up on any other novels? <laughs> he's like he's a night flyer. That's a whole other story. Um, on hearing about, um, oh, I got here. After Dawes explains to the reporter why why he's doing all of this, the reporter says, "This is a great summation of the book." He goes, "That's pretty stupid, Mister Dawes. Do you mind me saying that?" <laughs> I, I've never applauded so much reading a passage from a book. Oh, so yeah, I mean the the book ends, it blows up. Our boy Dave wins his, I think he wins like the Nobel Prize or something like that Pulitzer, for journalism, Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, he wins a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. The WHLM news team won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of what they called Dawes Last Stand. Ugh. Yeah, disgusting. Um, our good friend Olivia, she gets into, she goes to college. Business school. She goes good oh and good for her. So I guess she existed after all. I guess I believe it at that point. And then she didn't she faint after hearing the news, though, something like that. And then there's this very strange final paragraph talking about how, like, Mary is now have to, has to deal with this, with what her husband has done. And it will forever be linked to um, the BDG. Is that right? The BDG? The, BD, the BGD. The BGD. BGD. Oh, God. And the road wasn't even necessary. <laughs> they just wanted to build it to get out of, uh, or to get uh, oh, yeah. money from the government. That's right. Because <laughs> they had to build a certain amount of roadways yeah. to get funded by the government. Just like the man, senseless, oh boy. senseless, and for no reason, and um, uh, bureaucracy. Which also other makes big you words. think. Which, <laughs> yeah. Other words of that nature. <laughs> which also makes you think that they had done what Allison said and just like gone to them and said, "Hey, this is the situation with this guy in his house. Couldn't they have just moved it like a little bit?" <laughs> Mac, <laughs> Big Brother doesn't care about you. You should know that by now, man. Uh, Come on. I think we're all bugged. We're all bugged here right now, so we should probably stop talking so much shit about the government. They bugged his house. (laughs) At that point, I thought maybe maybe he's still delusional. Unbelievable. Yeah, because there's nothing about it that's remotely believable. I do like how Maglior took a break. Like, I'll send some boys over to the house and they will sweep it. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll, we'll take a look out for you. Um, Anybody else have anything else to say about this? I guess we really covered a lot of this by now. And uh, oh wait, what's that? Hold on a second. Somebody's at the door. Huh. Hmm. It's a package. Let me open this up. Food. Did anybody order some pound cake? After all you've been talking, everyone in bed, Mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. 
He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. I think I have about five pages or four, four pages of notes, single-spaced. And a quarter of it is pound cake. So we've got a lot to dive into here. I hope, hope um, you're still hungry because... <laughs> Let's get to work. We're just going to have to go in a circle here. I'm just going to take off whatever gets mentioned here because yeah. we've got a lot to go over. So who wants to start? And then we'll go in a circle from, from right. We'll just go like uh, right and all the way around. So who wants to start this off? Oh, I can start. Allison. Um, that way you can go last and you'll That's know. All right. Fine. Um, so this is just a triumph of creative writing. It made me question everything I knew about the world or thought I knew. Um, I imagine it will haunt me until my last days. Um, like the WHLM news team, it should have won a Pulitzer. But it wouldn't come, not the way he wanted it. He couldn't remember the precise, tight feel of her breasts or the secret taste of her nipples, which I'm guessing is secret in the way that Southern Comfort and 7-Up is secret. He knew that the he knew that the actual friction of intercourse had been more pleasurable with her than with Mary. Poor fucking Mary. Mm. Olivia had been a sn- <laughs> just can't even say it with a straight face. Oh god. We do it harmony. <laughs> Olivia had been a snugger fit, and once his penis had popped out of her vagina with an audible sound like the pop of a champagne cork. Um, uh. I just. <laughs> All you think of is the song Lollipop. <laughs> That's better. Oh, God. Now, go now I'm never going to listen to that again. If Dan's listening, you better have Lollipop at the very end of this episode playing. <laughs> um, that's fantastic, Allison. That was absolutely one of my... Just, just one mentions. more time. Just one more time. <laughs> I was just getting whistles, getting nostalgic of reading this book. Um, <laughs> Mac, you go ahead. So, um, you know, again, taking notes on Audible is hard because I didn't have the actual passages. But if someone else has this, but the, 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 the lifeguard penis thing, oh, do you have that? Oh, yeah, I got it. Can someone read that, please? Yeah, it's a really good build. Um, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> this is during his dream. It's on page 52 of, of my book. The dream about the sun dying. Yeah, I just want to make that end up with a drowned kid at the end of this. Poignant dream. A lifeguard on his whitewashed tower, his skin as brown as a boot, the crotch of his white latex swim trunks bulging, as if penis and testicle size were somehow a job prerequisite, and he wanted everyone in the area to know they were not being let down. A little bit later, two girls walked by in bikinis, safe and sane inside beautiful, screwable bodies, never for you, but for boyfriends nobody ever saw... A little bit later, when the tide brought the water up to the first wall, he dug a moat with his fingers, spreading the wet sand like a woman's vagina. And that's the child doing the digging, by the way. That is the child digging in the sand like a woman's vagina. Spreading the wet sand like a woman's vagina. All I remember was a beach dream with Charlie Sandcastle. And Dan's like, ugh. (laughs) Like Sandcastle slash spreading a woman's vagina. Okay, let's... As we all know, Pound Cake also talks about just gross bodily functions gone wrong via Stephen King's writing. Oh, yeah. I'll just kick off a little brief one. Um, We learn, we don't learn a lot about Dawes truly because he's so unreliable, but we do know that submarine submarine sandwiches give Dawes gas like hell. Allison, you can go next. Um, I just want to pour a little out uh, for the constant references to the snake that turns to yes, sound. That's my next one. Um, oh my god! There's se- or you know what? And we'll, we'll throw in there um, the conversation about the cotter pins that look like penises. There's a lot of like, yeah, but my dick though, 
Like, that's a lot road work. Or, yeah, but my dick, though, I just... It's just, I don't have any of the exact lines pulled up, but that's mostly, do you, like, Mel, do you have I do, them? but she also calls it the Rock of Ages. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. So, so Mary, um. so Mary, she just had, she has, like, all of these names, and I was just like, what are you doing here? Like, just, she's, you know, just her when she's like, put it in me, Bart. Like, ugh. Or, yeah, the snake turning into stone. She, like, mentioned that a couple of times, and, and I just thought, who, who references it is that? And, like, Stephen why? <laughs> Um, oh, boy. Oh, I got another one here. I got another one here. Uh, this is kind of just talks about how Dawes is disgusted by his wife's physical presence, apparently. Um, her skin was very good, her breasts small, and not apt to sag much. Oh, I guess that's actually talking about um, Olivia. No. No, it's Mary. Oh, is that's it Mary? Mary? That's the first description. That's oh, that's like a backhanded Mary. compliment, I guess, he's, yeah. he's giving, too, there. So um, I do have a little brief thing on that, I guess. I just wrote, Tina's breasts... Is that <laughs> is, is that ring a bell? Uh, oh, I think that was one of the friends, maybe, of the book in the book. Oh, his old girlfriend. That's yeah. Oh uh, yeah, okay. yeah, oh. yeah. Um, oh god, anybody else? I don't I, know. I really want to read the the Rock of Ages part. Go it's, ahead. It's yeah. just oh, so please. good. Yeah, it's yeah. got some good similes in it. Um, his penis was still fully erect, uncomfortable. It bulged against the crotch of his pants, what Mary had sometimes called the Rock of Ages, and sometimes the snake that turned to stone in their younger days, when bed was nothing but a playground sport. He pulled at the folds of his underwear, and when it didn't go down, he stood up. After a while, the erection wilted, and he sat down again. When the news was over, a movie came on. John Agar in Brain from Planet Arouse. Arouse. He fell asleep sitting in front of the TV with the Space Command module still clasped loosely in one hand. A few minutes later, there was a stirring beneath the fly of his pants as his erection returned stealthily like a murderer revisiting the scene of an ancient crime. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, where's that story? Ancient crime. Not even even a recent one. (laughs) Um... Here's some incredible, <laughs> incredible morning after talk with Olivia uh-huh. and Dawes. Here's the, here's the exchange. Would you like a fried egg? Two if you've got them. Sure. Well, listen, about last night. <laughs> Never mind last night. I came. That's very rare for me. I enjoyed it. What? <laughs> Who talks like this? No one. No one has ever talked like that. Um, fascinating. Fascinating. Um, I, I can keep going. I'll let somebody else go some Yeah, more. just uh, yeah. At this point, just read them. Just rattle them off. Yeah, I don't yeah, have any just more. Just throw them out. Mel, I know they exist. Mel, let's go back and forth here. Mel, yeah, you go. He brushed her breast, primly broad by the feel. Yes. On the way by, it felt away Mary's breast hadn't felt in years. What a jerk! What a dick! <laughs> um, here's another Olivia classic final exchanger. Goodbye, Mister Dawes. Thanks. You're good in bed. You mind me saying that? You are. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> At ten minutes of nine, they brought a crane up the street, the wrecking ball dangling from the top of the gantry like some disembodied Ethiopian teat. No. No. Ethiopian. No. God. Um, Nope. This is... (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to save this one for last. This is so disgusting. Uh, Here we go. This is near the end of the book. I like when he's doing the target you have, practice. You took all these notes. You have to actively search for them because yeah, there's so many. so many. I want to make sure I don't repeat anything. Back here, the snow was as he had pictured it in his mind a little more than a week ago. Untouched, unmarred, totally virgin. No one had foot-fucked his snow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that. that. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 like, typing vigorously. He's like, like yes, good, what good. What in the <laughs> fuck? 
Um, Mel? Every light in the house was blazing. <laughs> Fuck the energy crisis. <laughs> Except, of course, in the living room, where rub your peepees <laughs> would be going on during the slow numbers. That's how they would talk at my seventh grade dance. Yeah. They'd say, listen, you kids out there, no, none of this rubbing the peepee bit business going on out there. Um, a party guest says, I think I'm going to whoopsie. Where's the bathroom? <laughs> so polite. Yeah. Um, someone referencing laundry from the hotel. Cummiest sheets oh. I ever seen. Some of them, some of them stand on end. <laughs> it was great when I was doing all these notes. <laughs> so on my Microsoft Word, it would say during the spell check, it would be like, "Cummiest? <laughs> like, do you mean comely? <laughs> do you mean comes? Do you mean?" That's an incredible description there that I've never read before. I will give King that. Um, here's the last. There's a lot. Of, uh, this is incredible. This is about the act of somebody having a stomachache. He went into the bathroom, sat on the ring, and a huge diarrhea movement rushed out of him like a mail train highballing through a deserted station. <laughs> His waist fell into the water with a sickening series of jets and plops that made him groan and clutch his head. He urinated without getting up, the rich and dismaying smell of this digestion's unsavory end product rising thickly around him. Why? Why? I, I mean, it, that's actually a pretty apt description. It is. It, it's disturbing. It, that, you know, I, that should have been the cemetery, actually, because that was the most disturbing part of yeah, the book. For I, me. Exactly. I said the pound cake was probably probably the most disturbing part. Yeah. He compares Char in Firestarter. He says Char. I had a bit in word processor of the god where he compares her power feeling like a highballing subway train, and now that's ruined. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. like shit Man. flying through. Oh my god! The so only other ones I oh, have please are just, keep going. Are just him treating. Uh, Black people poorly, which is really not. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, like the, there's so <laughs> much, so much, so many slurs and things in this that. That's more. I think that's a character. Him oh yeah, being absolutely. An asshole, but, but it was whoever's just, around him too, right? Yeah, it, but it's it, it seemed to be heavy at the, be- the beginning of the book, and then and then not as much later. So I don't know. It's just it was just weird. Maybe he somehow became more tolerant of people. Why well, became less tolerant of the government? Uh, maybe. Maybe not. Uh, though. Maybe not. Yeah. Um, I, Mel, do you have anything else? I've got a couple little things you here, know, but they're not even worth mentioning. I think it's we. Your show. Why don't you? Uh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think. Um, Have the I last think slice. I'm. I think right. I'm stuffed. All right. Is everybody else here just totally? Well, stuffed? considering I also just housed a donut. Yeah. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> yep. Too much. Oh Too much. my god. So I don't know. I'm thinking about other books. Even it, which is about three times this length. There's not this much pound cake in that this is the per page servings of pound cake and this is, is incredible this is the most most we've had in a while absolutely i think actually on the back of the book um there's a new york times thing that says wow the sex talk is great <laughs> king at his best yeah. <laughs> um i have no transition for this <laughs> let's just start talking about the um the allusions to other king works whether they're intentional or not let's enter into king's dominion There's another world out there. I know there is. Yeah, the only thing that I noticed right out the gate, which I thought was interesting because at the time, you know, he's writing as Richard Bachman and not Stephen King, but he mentions that there about the Mangler. Mm-hmm. He talks yeah. about how it, it is a machine that's there that they that in, in, in the laundromat, right? I mean, like, yeah. it's, it's a real thing he talks about. I've got a little thing here. It says, uh, yeah, he could yeah. hear the washers and the steady thumping hiss of the ironer. 
The Mangler, they called it, on account of what would happen to you if you ever got caught in it. And it takes place at the Blue Ribbon Laundry, which is a facility that the Mangler machine well, is also would, in another another location. I would be interested, like, so obviously had he written the Mangler before this, or did he write it after taking from this? I, I don't know the exact year he wrote the Mangler, because the Night Shift is a collection, Night Shift right, is a right, collection right. of the short stories before then. So I don't know which one was alluding uh, to what. Yeah, I'm going to look that up. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's really, I it. think that's all I had for King's Dominion. Uh, there's a mention, he like uses the term gunslinger, but that's more Room 237 for you, you know? Yeah, like the, the stretches. I've got a couple things here. i got a couple little minor things here that would make my brother proud. He likes to oh, no, the I, I have another one. Oh. Uh, Chapter 16 of the Audible, I don't know. Uh, he says, some, he talks about how he, he's like, Oh, I'm sorry, I was a little off kilter. I was a little off the beam. Oh, yeah. I've got that. Yeah, yeah there and, you go. And I thought, I was like, Oh, well, some beam speak. Mount- I don't know. What, 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 what beam would, be, would we be on? Um, the, beam, um, the beam of BGD? <laughs> the BGD. Bart's beam. Bart's beam. Um, Stretched, probably not intentional. I think he just likes to talk this way. Um, he's talking to himself. He says, not even a salesman would laugh at that. Right, Fred? Right, George? Key wrecked. And the Pennywise talks to yeah. Georgie like that. Yeah. So I've got that, very, too. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. I've got a big one. Do you know what the name of the highway extension is? No. What? It's the... The, the big thing that's going to be built, the big project, that's, that's going to cause him to move out of his house and the, um, the laundry facility to close down. It's the 784 extension. 784 equals 19. Oh, it sure does. How about that? That, that I did That's not pretty catch. cool, huh? Yeah. yeah. I, I, that's cool. I thought that was pretty, pretty freaky. Yeah. One might say that the road they're building is on the path of the, of the beam, the, the BART beam. The BART beam. Uh, Melcoin. The BB. <laughs> Um, Allison, do you have anything that, uh, in your notes at all? I've got a couple more things here. Oh, no, not really. I mean, the big one was the mangler. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I don't know, the tendency to occasionally write unremarkable male protagonists. Oh, that's, that's, that's absolutely King's fair, Canyon, especially in the early 70s. My, my, my boy Ben Mears um, would probably back me up on that. Um, I do have, oh, also Margaret White from Carrie worked at a Blue Ribbon Laundry. Oh, about a little bit of business. So we're, it's safe to say this is in the same universe as Carrie, maybe? Without question. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's Carrie and Roadwork and the Mangler. Um, Mel, anything else? Um, no, I cheated and, and read after this that the Blue Jay story is repeated. I, I read a couple else. of that. Yeah, I guess I think they talk about that in App Pupil and something else too, right? It's like repeating of the phrase that the beak was opening and closing. And closing, yeah. He has a memory where he kills a Blue Jay with like a BB gun or yeah. something, but yeah. So again, this is early, early, early King. I, I, this was not written um, after Firestar. This is written God, again. the The course of his career would have been so different. I feel like if he had done this instead of God, I'm, I'm, the, the scariest thing about this entire book is thinking about what if he had published Real Work Second. Um, so if we're, if we're done with the King's Dominion, we are mercifully at the end here. It's time to give our. Is it possibly time to give our overall thoughts on Real Work? Um, I hope so, because we're about to. <laughs> Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. So once again, on a scale from one to five, shiny red Pennywise clown noses. Who wants to start this off? Allison, 
You can start it off. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go ahead and give this one shiny red Pennywise clam nose. A uh, whole one, not a half a one. Allison, what didn't you like about it? <laughs> <laughs> is there really anything left to cover? Honestly, there probably is. I thought that the diarrhea section was great. Yes, that, yes. And everything else, just right for the garbage heap. No, seriously, um, I mean, you read a bad book by a great writer, and there are still going to be things in it that are worth reading. Um, mm-hmm. But this is uh, a book in which I not only didn't care about the protagonist, I sort of actively wanted him to go away. I am more interested in every other little sketched-out character in the story than the person we're supposed to be following, and they don't have personalities, (laughs) really. Um, I would rather have hitchhiked with Olivia across the country, and she's a (laughs) manic pixie dream hitchhiker. Um, That would be more interesting to me. I I would have rather just read about Mary sitting at her parents' house trying to figure out what the hell was going on with her husband. I would much rather have spent a lot of time at the car dealership. With Max. With Sal. <laughs> with Sal. Oh, man, that'd that be great. Was, please, write that book and I will read it. But this was um, just a, a real, I'm not even sure disappointment is the right word, because by the time I had started it, I had already heard, like, oh, woof, this is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it succeeded in living up to my expectations. And you also gave Rage once. This is your second one those are correct? Yes. Wow, this is incredible. Mac. Is this your first one? Oh. Noser or one? What are you gonna give? I'm it? gonna give it. No, uh, yeah, I think it's it is probably my first one noser, yeah. and it's definitely getting one. Wow, one red shiny shiny red Pennywise <laughs> clown nose. Uh, yeah, it's just just not good. And like because I read that King really thinks that this is the best Bachman book, and after reading The Long Walk, I had really high hopes for mm-hmm. this. I thought, oh wow, like well, if, it's, if he thinks it's better than the Long The Long Walk. I was on board for this to be really good. So I overlooked a lot of its faults along the way, thinking that it was going, there's going to be a shift. There's going to be a turn and is, this is going to blow, blow my mind away. Yeah. Um, and fortunately it just only blows his mind away, but uh, yeah, it just, <laughs> it was just not, not very good. I mean, you know, I think there's something to be said um it really isn't. <laughs> that's like that's great. That's that's the pull quote from this episode. There's nothing to be said. There really isn't. Uh, okay, so we got one and one. Mel. Yeah, I'll make it a triple. Wow. Um, yeah. It's gonna be one. Is it shiny or bright? Because we did bright when I was bright. You know what? One it, luminescent. Yeah. Eyes. One light filled. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's definitely a clown nose. We know that yeah, much. Yeah. So one. Yeah. Clown nose. Um. We didn't really get on our feminist soapbox, and maybe we don't really need to. I think it's implied that there is uh, some horrible treatment of women yep. in this book, um, both in the plot and just in the writing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I think he he might think there's something almost noble or knightly about what Barton is doing in that he is sacrificing everything, um, including the livelihoods and security of other people to make a moral stand. And perhaps he thinks that moral stand is the right one. Um, but he did not convince me or I don't think anyone in this room. I agree. And again, the fault, the big fault of this book is how unclear the message is. And not every book has half a direct message, but you have to have some inkling of a motivation behind, especially the protagonist you're following for 400 pages. So this is, um, it hurts to say it, but yeah, I'm going to give this the old, the one noser. 
It's it's the one bright red Pennywise clown. Those for me too. Wasn't Rage all ones or is this? Oh, I was on the episode, but yeah, I think did everybody give Rage a one or did anybody give well, like a, a one and a half? One and a half. I think someone gave it. Oh, then this is worse. maybe wow. someone gave it one and a half. But did anybody give it like Point five. no noses? Oh, I, I go by the Mike, one. To, I, I go by the strict one to five. So oh, if Mike did what? the zero to five, I I'm gonna count that as a oneer. I, I, gosh, I, at this point, it feels like it was a zillion years ago. Mostly no. because I aged several years <laughs> while reading this book. Um, but I think that Mike might have gone with like a half of a clown nose or something. Maybe. Um, I don't remember feeling like the real asshole in the room. That's for sure. No, I uh, remember when we when we broke up night shift. We, there might have been a one noser there, but I feel like we were all very like. Yeah, but even short the stories worst, are different than well, looking at Well, even the novel. worst short story, I feel like someone personally liked it or something. So I don't think it was a true one. Those are all... You know what, listeners? If you remember or have been keeping <laughs> track, uh, yeah, let us know. But uh, I think this is a one one those are all around. I'm interested to see you know, if the other losers have read it and what they think. I know Randall read it. Randall and Dan had read it years ago, and they... Don't remember hating it that much, but mm. I don't know what they would think now. Read it again. Our, Mike actually did start reading it, but he, after hearing what we all had to say about it, he kind of thought, nah, I'm just going to go ahead and skip to the next book here. Um, I do want to read this passage. I think that best sums up the book um, unintentionally on King's End. This is a conversation that um, Dawes has with Olivia. And he says, One way or the other, things are set and they'll turn out the way they will. Only one thing that bothers me, and that's a feeling I get from time to time, that I'm a character in some bad writer's book. And he's already decided how things are going to turn out and why. It's easier to see things that way, even, than to blame it on God. What did he ever do for me one way or the other? No, it's this bad writer. It's his fault. He cut my son down by writing in a brain tumor. That was chapter one. Suicide or no suicide, that comes just before the epilogue. It's a stupid story. Stephen King, Richard Bachman, couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) So sadly... This ends the month-plus stretch of negative King news. But, Matt, do you want to say something else? Uh, if we were to cast it. Oh. Because okay. there is not an adaptation of this, which is interesting because it's probably really easily done as an adaptation. I guess no one's interested in turning it into a movie or a series. Um, I've got only one. I can't even cast the other people yeah. in this. I mean, we talked I, about Dawes, you know, I mean, Danny Aiello. Uh, and Asal. Asal. Asal, my lord. I'm, I, we could spend like five minutes just talking about different people that could play Sal. I'm going to th- throw out there Queen Latifah. Oh, Let's there go we ahead. go. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So then she's got he- dudes who are her heavies, and she's just sitting there being intimidating. And then she, la- I would, Queen Latifah. That, that's that one of my suggestions. If you're listening out there, whoever's going to be adapting Roadwork, finally. Let's go with let's go with Queen Latifah. I had if it was the seventies, I had like Lee Majors as as Dawes at this point. Is there um, anybody that's out there funny because who could make Dawes interesting? Like if Tom Hanks starred Tom as Hanks. Dawes, would it make it you know interesting? What? Michael Shannon, something like it, that. Michael Shannon. The, way, the way that Dawes is written, I can see Tom Hanks doing him now. Yeah. Age wise. Yeah. Or like, you know, I really thought like and maybe it's because of that cover, but I was like I pictured like Tom Atkins. Like oh, like in the eighties, yeah, that would yeah, be good. Like a young Tom Atkins uh, doing this, but I don't know. Good luck to the actors trying to sell Bart Dawes to the audience. There has been no recent news of this being adapted, and I think it's it's a tough one to adapt. You'd have to really be liberal with it, like they were liberal with the Dark Tower adaptation that just came out. So um, that's a whole other bag of bones we can get into later on but um what i was saying was the firestarter this and the dark tower movie we weren't obviously big fans of the, those three uh, king projects 
but we do have a great, great stretch coming up. So if you're getting tired of us bashing King for hours at a time, the rest of the eighties is looking pretty good. So, um, the next book we're going to be doing is, uh, Don's Macabre, which is a, I think Mel, you've read it, right? I actually have not read this either. So this is going to be the second one I've not read, but this is not a fictional book. This is a nonfiction. Mel, can you give a brief description of what, uh, of what that is? Sure. As far as I remember, um, it is King's formal attempt at summarizing why people gravitate towards horror, why he writes horror, or why anyone would write horror, and his favorite examples of successful horror pieces, whether they are written or filmed or um, just his meditations on the whole genre from way back to his present, which I guess would have been in the 80s. So Yeah, in the early 80s. His- so. And we're all fans of the genre, so that should be actually interesting to read into. And also just to get into where he was at the time. I guess when he wrote that, he was probably coked out of his mind, too. So this is going to be very fascinating <laughs> to read. Right. Uh, well, it seems like maybe we as a podcast, you know, we had this erection, this rock of ages, that you used to call it. <laughs> and over the stone. last month, it has wilted and gone back into hiding in our respective literary underpants. But over the coming weeks, it will rise again. The like snake a murderer. turning to like a murder, yeah. <laughs> like an ancient crime. Uh, yes. Oh. Well, we've, the only crime that we've committed is against ourselves for um, putting ourselves through this. So I hope everybody out there listening is very proud of us. I'm proud of us for getting through real work. Uh, we'll be editing this a little bit, but Mac, how many hours do we talk about real work? Two hours. Wow. I am very, <laughs> oh my God, two hours of real work. Hey, everybody, good job. A pleasure as always. Mel, I'm happy that you're continuing to do the podcast. We're all very happy that Allison is back in the fold, and we're not sure who's going to be doing Dance Macabre, but somebody will be there to do it. Maybe maybe be one of us. Yeah, so tune in. And tune in. And until then, everybody, long, long days, days and pleasant, pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot Consequence Podcast Network.